When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Now, with all of that behind us, we now have section 132. Are you ready? Uh, this revelation is one of the, one of the, well, let's be Charles Dickens, the best of times and worst of times. Uh, and the fact they're in the same revelation, I think needs to tell us something about some of the most glorious things God wants to give us and some of the gut checks that we have to pass along the way. If, if blessings are predicated upon obedience to law, then perhaps this most glorious of blessings, the eternal family, as described in 132, you must be willing to live even the most difficult of commandments. In their case, not in ours, in their case, that included plural marriage. That, that there's something, I'll put it this way. Usually when you ask people, what's section 132 about? They're like, oh, that's the one about plural marriage. Mm, yes, but incomplete. Plural marriage is just a subset of eternal marriage. Celestial marriage is the large umbrella. And the rule of celestial marriage is monogamy. And exception within celestial marriage is plural marriage. Please keep that in mind throughout. In fact, we'll see how the Lord sets this up in 132 in terms of how he places the conversation and where he talks about celestial marriage versus where he talks about plural marriage specifically. Okay? The way he does this is, is incredible. It really is inspired and inspiring in spite of the fact that it's really difficult. And one of the things that makes it all the more difficult, and this we have Hollywood to thank for, is that we live in a day that makes section 132 and the whole concept of plural marriage so sensationalized, so shock and awe. Like I said at the beginning today, uh, that we're, we're trying to carve out this, this really narrow space where the Holy Ghost can confirm to us that it confirmed to them something it cannot confirm to us directly. So sufficiently muddy? The Spirit confirmed to them this is the way they needed to live. It cannot confirm to us that we are supposed to live that way because we don't live in the age of the exception. We live in the age of the rule. And I, for one, am eternally grateful for that. But the Spirit can confirm to me that it confirmed that to them. What makes that difficult is Hollywood has ruined sexuality by, by putting it everywhere and just throwing it onto billboards and magazine covers and, in, and infusing music with it and into movies and television programs, it is, it's everywhere. 
and I even feel bad for, I, it hit, this hit me when I taught seminary. These poor teenagers that the only, ex, the, the exposure that they get to sexuality is in a, in a realm in which the spirit has nothing to do and cannot confirm. And so when they're learning, quote unquote, sexuality from Hollywood, the spirit is totally absent and it makes them feel really uncomfortable. So watch the sensitive soul of a, of a child or a teenager. And when images or talk comes up in a movie or TV show or music lyrics or whatever, there's this, this sick feeling in their stomach and there should be. But guess what that does? It ruins sexuality within a covenant marriage to the point that they don't want to talk about it with parents. They, they're uncomfortable having conversations. To me, I've, I've, I would laugh about this more if it weren't such, so, so painful instead of humorous. But talk to a group of young people and say, what do you call the conversation when you, talk, when you, have, when you learn about sexuality from your parents? And they're like, oh, you mean the talk? I go, yeah, the talk. And the fact that that is a singular noun is incredibly problematic. You think you can reduce something as complicated and something as important, but something as, as carefully circumscribed as sexuality into a single, solitary, uncomfortable conversation that neither party wants to have? Yikes. No wonder we're so confused. Definitely outside the church, but even inside the church. If that's all we got was one awkward talk, instead of being able to help our children, and this has to be left in the home. We don't do sex ed at church, thankfully. But parents need to be much more comfortable so that children can be much more comfortable. We have to be better at teaching so that they can be better at learning because this is a gift that God gives us to participate in something that only He does, which is create life. The fact He delegates and allows us to participate in that is awe-inspiring. But we have to understand it from his perspective instead of Hollywood's. And unfortunately, Hollywood's perspective makes it almost impossible for us to reinsert God's perspective because that first voice is so loud in our ears or so searing in our eyes that we just need to, to separate ourselves from that and allow God to reveal the glory of what marital love is supposed to entail. I, I pray that that makes sense. Most definitely for celestial monogamy, which is the rule. But today I pray it can help us navigate celestial polygamy in the case of about 50 years worth of Latter-day Saints. And even then, less than a majority. Numbers are hard to tell, but somewhere, oh, about maybe a 20 to 30 percent of Latter-day Saints that practice plural marriage in the Utah period, a tiny fraction during Joseph Smith's lifetime in Nauvoo. But to understand, well, I'll put it this way. You know uh, that in divinity school, I studied anti-Mormon or anti-religious rhetoric, but a healthy helping of anti-Mormonism. And boy, do they have a field day when it comes to plural marriage. I mean, obviously, that's about as easy as it gets. It, it's it. It's like, let's give them something to work with. Well, plural marriage will do it. And the, and the anti-Latter-day Saints, or even just Christians in general, and the politicians, you name it, Western civilization had a field day making fun of Latter-day Saints over plural marriage. Some scholars have even suggested during the time period where it was so taboo to talk about sexuality, this gave them free reign to talk about it 
but to over-sensualize uh, over it and over-sensationalize it, which is exactly what they did about plural marriage then and, about, and, and exactly what they do about sexuality now, ruining the past for the early saints and ruining the present for all the rest of us. I'll put it this way, in my study of anti-religious rhetoric, and this goes bar, far beyond anti-Mormonism, I call them the three S's. And this is how you can really take somebody away from their faith. The first S is sensationalism. Let's give them some kind of shock and awe thing that just blows everything up and turns this from any kind of rational or even spiritual into a purely emotional kind of like, ah, oh, how do I do this? The easiest ways to sensationalize things, Hollywood does it all the time, are through sex, violence, race, money, those kinds of things. And how do you make anti-Mormonism sensational? Talk about plural marriage. There's the sex side of things. Uh, violence, let's talk Mountain Meadows Massacre. Uh, race, let's talk about race and the priesthood. Money, let's talk about tithing or, or the, the mall in downtown Salt Lake. or Just interesting things people do to try to, to freak people out about the church, past or present. Okay, so the first is sensational. Number two, the second S is superficial. Let's just give them a very shallow understanding of this. Let's freak them out first so faith goes out the window and th thinking things through or approaching these things carefully, nope, that's gone. I'm, I'm freaked out and all my emotion says this is wrong. Number two, let's be very superficial and give them just enough information that they get worried, but not enough information that they get their feet back beneath them. I had one anti-Mormon actually tell me to my face, you Latter-day Saints are banking on your members not learning their history. Because as soon as they learn their history, they're out. And I said, you know, first of all, I don't think there's another church on the planet that teaches its own history more than the Latter-day Saints. But number two, with all due respect, I think it's you that's banking on our members not learning their history. At least not learning enough of it. You teach them surface level, superficial, very shallow, just enough history that it freaks them out, but not enough that they get restabilized. You're all about destabilized, not restabilized. Uh, this is simplicity, complexity, back to simplicity. This is creation, fall, atonement. Okay? And you don't want them in atonement. You want them in fall and only fall. As Rick Turley used to say, the former assistant uh, church historian, don't study church history too little. And that's especially the case with plural marriage. If you want to study it, then study it as much as you can. Because uh, the third S, if it's sensational and, and superficial, it's also selective. And we're only going to give you the information that makes things look bad. We only want to hear from the lawyers for the prosecution. We do not want to allow for the lawyers for the defense to get a word in edgewise. We want our witnesses. And no, you can't cross-examine them. We want, we want our evidence. And no, you can't provide any evidence of your own. We want to stack the jury with fellow prosecutors. No one that's sympathetic to the cause of, of the defense. We're going to plant a judge that's already passed sentence before the court, the court case even uh, comes into session. This is so true across the board as people attack faith. And so with plural marriage, has it been sensationalized? Has it been made? Do people explain it in an incredibly superficial way? And are they extremely selective in the kinds of things that they present? In fact, to me, I've, I've shown this to students as an example of those three S's in anti-Mormonism. There's an infographic that's pretty popular when it comes to plural marriage. 
and it's about Joseph Smith's wives, and it has, you know, kind of uh, pictures of, of, you know, or, or silhouettes of women, and just there's so many of them, and here's the ones that were underage, and here's the ones that were siblings or, or related to each other, and here's the ones that were already married to other men at the time, and Joseph stole their wives and sent them away on missions, and it's like, wah! I mean, it is textbook, three S's. It is so sensationalized, and where does it leave people? It leaves people picturing Joseph Smith as just some kind of, oh, the libido completely out of control, and he is a sexual predator and a pedophile. I mean, there is sensationalism and shock and awe. And sadly, I've had emails from parents that say, what do I say to my daughter who says that Joseph Smith was a pedophile or a sexual predator? And I just think, well, first of all, you ask her to go beyond the, the, the sensational and the superficial and the selective. Because if that's what they're left with, and it's so easy to do by throwing up some infographic, shock and awe with plural marriage and, and the way they present it, but then so superficial. There's recently been a three-volume set of books on Joseph Smith's plural marriage. And I've asked people, you really think you can reduce three volumes into an infographic? Whew, very, very superficial and selective. I've often said about that infographic, oh, can you, have you seen the second one? And they're like, what? Well, that, that first infographic is about Joseph Smith's wives. The second infographic is about Joseph Smith's children. And they're like, oh, what does that infographic show? And my answer, nothing, because there is no second infographic. Because Joseph had no other children from any other wife but Emma. Now that would have been helpful information to go along with the first infographic, don't you think? You, as it, you, it makes you scratch your head and wonder, how come that information was left out? Now I am not saying that Joseph Smith did not consummate any of his other marriages. But the fact that he had so many pregnancies and children from Emma and none from anyone else does make us pause and reconsider some things to wonder just how much of a component to plural marriage sexuality happened to be during the Joseph Smith period. In, in Utah, it's different. They call it domestic plural marriage because it's out in the open and they're living together as, as families and so on. But as it's first introduced in, in Joseph Smith's time period, it's, it's not what people sensationalize it to be. And so as we study this topic in this, uh, in the, in this revelation, be very careful about, about over-sexualizing or hyper-sexualizing everything. Unfortunately, we live in a sex-saturated society. And so we take a 21st century dirty mind and pollute a 19th century practice. This is Victorian America with all of its prudery. And so to understand, it's so unfair of us. Presentism is the cardinal sin of history, where you judge the past by the standards of the present. We can't do that. We especially can't do that today. So please be aware and beware of sensational infographics and shallow memes and selective history and try to understand what's happening here. It's, it's going to be tricky no matter what. It was tricky for them. It's going to be tricky for us. But it's, made, it's been made all the harder because of the hypersexualization and sensualization.
of society. In fact, if I could start the conversation with this story, back at Divinity School, it was during the Romney campaign, I've said this before, and so all kinds of churches in the South are wondering, can we vote for a Mormon? And I was asked by all kinds of different congregations to come and explain the church to them and other Divinity School students that weren't even LDS were being hired by local congregations to do kind of adult religion classes to kind of explain to them what, what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was all about. Well, I got a phone call one day from a student at the Divinity School that I didn't know personally, but she calls me up and said, hey, Jared, I'm so-and-so, I'm at the Divinity School too. I heard you're LDS. I'm like, yeah, I was just hired by a congregation to take a couple of weeks and explain Mormonism to them. And I couldn't admit to them, I don't know enough of, I hardly know anything about Mormonism. I definitely don't know enough to do justice to your church. So I was wondering, I know you're busy, but if you have the time, could we like, could we get together for coffee and you explain Mormonism to me? And I thought to myself, <laughs> the fact you're inviting me for coffee to talk about Mormonism lets me know how little you know about the restored gospel, uh, which means, yes, you need all the help you can get. So, yes, let's go. Uh, we went to Starbucks, and she drank, and I talked. Okay? And we talked about all kinds of things. It was a long, deep conversation. In fact, it was so deep that by the end of it, she was like, I feel better, but now I feel worse. Your, your church sounds amazing, and there's so much depth and and. I have only gotten the caricatures before. Okay? I've gotten the really shallow, superficial stuff. Okay, And I, wow, there's, can you come with me? Would that be okay? Um, I feel, hmm, I, I feel like I'm out of my depth. And so when I go to this congregation to teach about your church, would you come with me? And I just smiled and like, I thought you'd never ask. Uh, and so, of course, I'd rather me do it than you do it. And so we went. In fact, when she introduced me, hilarious. She's like, we're going to talk about Mormonism. This church is amazing. It's way more deep and theologically rich than I thought. And I, I realized I couldn't do, do it justice. So, so I brought my Mormon with me. And I just laughed. I'm like, I'm somebody's Mormon? I'd never been introduced that way. Like, huh, I'm your Mormon. I just laughed. I'm like, you know, everybody deserves a Mormon of their very own. So go out and be somebody's Mormon, would you? Uh, somebody's member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to be accurate. Well, I was that for her and for them that day. But when we were back in the uh, Rewind, we're back in Starbucks. And we're talking about LDS history and scripture and practice and doctrine. And, and of course, plural marriage, because that always comes up. It's the most easily sensationalizable, right? So she's curious and wants to know about that. Uh, and so I start to explain. And I'm going through all this history and doctrine and so on and practice. And, and then she's like, what? so how many, how many wives did Brigham Young have anyway? Now, I couldn't remember off the top of my head. Uh, and I think I threw out a number like, I can't remember, like 27 or something. I think it was more than that. Uh, and Joseph Smith, according to our best estimates, uh, they didn't keep many records on all of this, but our best estimates is Joseph had a few more than that too, probably mid, early, young or low 30s, which again is, seems scandalous if we hypersexualize it. And she was kind of doing that because she muttered something under her breath that blew me away. Again, this is our first impression of one another. And she's like, so how many wives bring me on? I'm like, ah, I can't remember exactly. I mean, ah, 27, give or take. And then she was like trying to, I could see she was trying to keep this poker face instead of like, what? Uh, again, sensationalized it. She was just like, no, mm, wow, okay. Uh, no, poker face. I am open-minded. Um, I'm a child of the modern day. Um, interesting, fascinating, okay. Uh, but as she was mustering the, the strength to keep the poker face, she must have have let loose a little on the mouth because she muttered something under her breath I don't think she meant for me to hear. 
And this college student in her late 20s, she muttered under her breath when I said 27, shock and awe, and then said, well, I guess I've had 27 sexual partners in my life. And then it was my turn to keep the poker face as I'm inside going, what? Right? And then I'm like, hmm, okay, no, not, no judgment for me. <laughs> uh, I'm open-minded. Hmm. Well, the fact she said it, that her thoughts of marriage immediately went to sexuality and thought, well, I've been that promiscuous. So who am I to judge a Brigham Young or a Joseph Smith for being equally promiscuous themselves? Well, the fact she said it, I needed to say something. And calmly and non-judgmentally, I said to her, I couldn't help but overhear what you just said. And no judgment from me. But I need to caution you about judgment from you along these lines. You said you've had sexual, 27 sexual partners. And be, as we talked, got to know each other at the beginning of our conversation, I know you've had one marriage partner. Uh, so the ratio of sexual partners to marriage partners in your case is 27 to 1. And again, no judgment for me. But I need you to understand that in my case, I have had one sexual partner in my life. And I have had one marriage partner in my life. And she became my marriage partner before she became my sexual partner. So in my case, the ratio of sexual partners to marriage partners is one to one. And what I need you to understand is when you're talking about Brigham Young or Joseph Smith or those early saints who practiced plural marriage, the ratio of sexual partners to marriage partners was never more than one to one. In fact, in many instances, it was less than one to one. In other words, yes, plural marriages were consummated, but not all of them, which begs the question. And they weren't consummated until they were marriage partners. There's something about sexuality versus marriage. There's something, and in our day, you can have all that you want of the one and never have to suffer through the challenge of the other. There's even an old joke that's so old they can't even say who, did, who started it. Where they said, bigamy is having one more wife than you should. And monogamy in many instances is the same. That's tragic. When you define monogamy as having one more wife than you should, and yet... Sexual liberation, you can have that as much as you want. Again, hypersexualized and hypersensualized society. Welcome to the 21st century. That wasn't what Joseph Smith was thinking, or Brigham Young, or Heber C. Kimball, or Parley P. Pratt, or John Taylor, men who were chased to the core. The way uh, Brigham Young describes it, when it was first revealed to me, I I saw a funeral and I envied the, the corpse in the coffin. I'd rather die than have to live this. Or John Taylor, a man of such noble spirit. And so I had always looked down upon those that were immoral as that is inexcusable. And now I'm being asked to do something that I consider immoral. How can I do that? The women that participate in a feeling like I will never be looked at, I'll never be looked at the same by society that doesn't understand the religious motives behind this. I will be misjudged. And they all were. 
Sadly, they're still being misjudged even by Latter-day Saints today. You don't have to agree with the practice right now. You shouldn't. The Spirit can't confirm that it's true for us. But the Spirit did confirm that it was true for them. And that oh, second step, spiritual confirmation, can come to us as well. What I've said to my students and to others is that plural marriage was more about spirituality than sexuality and more about religion than romance. My hope was that those S's and those R's would stick in their head. Okay? Don't, do not take the, the lack of standards from a sexualized society in the 21st century and superimpose it over a Victorian society in the 19th. It's completely unfair. Spirituality more than sexuality. Religion more than romance. One of my favorite statements about plural marriage came from Helen Mar Whitney. Of all people, the one most sensationalized. Since she was 14 years old, soon to turn 15, when she was first sealed to Joseph Smith in plural marriage. That's the, he's a pedophile. There is absolutely zero evidence that that marriage was ever consummated. All the polyandrous ones, when, oh, he sent somebody off on a mission so he could steal their wife. Absolutely no evidence that any of those polyandrous marriages were ever consummated. Spirituality here, not sexuality there. There was some sexuality in marriages meant to continue to have children, but from single sisters that were of age. And don't hypersexualize or over-sensationalize this. But in the case of Helen Mar Whitney, the youngest of Joseph's wives, she described plural marriage as, quote, a subject that can bear investigation, close quote. And I love that she would be the one to confirm that. You want to investigate it? Fine. But investigate it fairly. When you get like a, oh, an Emily Partridge and all the accusations of, of again, sexuality and secrecy and deception and, and, and forced, again, sexual predator and pedophilia and all those kinds of sensationalized accusations against Joseph Smith. But as she describes her own wedding, that she and Joseph were sealed in the Heber C. Kimball home. And then she talks about, and after the wedding was over, Joseph walked home to his house and I walked home to mine. I mean, she even kind of laughs at it and says, a strange way of getting married, wasn't it? That's it. We're now connected somehow in eternity. We're just not connected in life. For those who want to be sensational and superficial and selective, I would ask, have you studied the, the marriage age in 19th century America? And have you seen how it shifts the further west you go on the frontier? Have you studied the difference between marriages for time and marriages for eternity, since those are very different? Uh, have you studied the experiences of men and women that actually participated in the process? Have you seen the examples of those that were extended the invitation and said no, and then remained faithful members of the church. I mean, there's something ironic to me about, remember when Moses says, envious thou for my sake? I think sometimes those early polygamists would say, offendest thou for my sake? You're more offended about it by it than I am, and I'm the one that had to live it. I had the gut punch and the gut check and, and came to know that it was God's will for us. So you don't have to be more offended by it than I was. We knew by personal revelation that it came from God. 
And that's how Joseph received it to begin with. So 132 verse 1, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Joseph, that inasmuch as you have inquired of my hand to know and understand, wherein I, the Lord, justified my servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as also Moses, David, and Solomon, my servants, as touching the principle and doctrine of their having many wives and concubines. Behold, and lo, I am the Lord thy God, and will answer thee as touching this matter. Now notice how this all begins. Joseph is wondering about plural marriage in the Old Testament. Kind of separates it along two, uh, in two groups. We've got the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob model. Then later in history, we've got the Moses, and beyond that, David and Solomon particularly model. Now, how does that all work? And notice his word there, justified. How could that act, which seems so immoral from our 19th century Victorian perspective, how, how is that justifiable? Now, this has to do with some history, because when is Joseph wondering that? If you notice in the chapter heading, this revelation is recorded in 1843, but principles would have been known far long before this. I mean, when is Joseph really grappling with the Old Testament and, and having to wrestle? Remember, he's the one that's confused about a, a, a wall around Jerusalem when he's translating the Book of Mormon, because he doesn't know the Old Testament well enough that, that yes, Jerusalem had walls. Well, does he know it well enough to know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and Solomon were polygamists? Probably not. But as he's translating the Bible in the Joseph Smith translation, and that's a project he engages in early on in his ministry, right? Uh, 1830 to 33 is, is when he's heavily engaged in that. So the, what we're guessing is, perhaps as early as 1831, this is on his mind, as he's scandalized by, he, by what he reads in Genesis. It's like, wait, What? Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, the wife, and he has a child, Ishmael, through that wife, and then a child, Isaac, through this one. What the? Heavenly Father, I, I, I believe in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are people I've always looked up to. How could they live like this? Just like so many young Latter-day Saints, or old, as they learned that, wait, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilfred Wood, Parley Pratt, they were all polygamists too? These are people I looked up to. How is that justifiable? In some ways, Joseph's going to cut you all the slack you need to wrestle through that because he had to get some slack cut for him too. What? How is this justifiable? That word, to me, gives me an understanding of Joseph's preconception that monogamy is the rule and there aren't any exceptions. How could this be justified? You know, he would have had confirmation of that assumption from section 42, the law of the Lord, in which monogamy is reconfirmed, one man, one woman, no adultery. He would have had that reconfirmed in section 49, the revelation to the Shakers, that marriage is ordained of God and it consists of one man and one woman coming together for creation and so on. He would have had that I mean, clearly confirmed to him as he's translating the pages of the Book of Mormon. So even before he studies Genesis in the JST, he has translated Jacob in the Book of Mormon. And the way Jacob describes marriage, and specifically the, the, the danger of plural marriage, go back to Jacob chapter 2. This people begin to wax in iniquity. So they're growing in their sinfulness. They understand not the scriptures. There's treasure the word, you won't be deceived. Well, they've been twisting instead of treasuring. For they seek to excuse themselves in committing whoredoms, 
And that's what it is. Okay, This isn't celestial marriage with multiple partners as designed by God. This is straight up whoredom because of the things which were written concerning David and Solomon, his son. See, they're not even using Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're, they're just going straight to David and Solomon as justification for their, for their immorality. Behold, the Lord continues through, through uh, Jacob, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines. You can't deny that from reading the scriptures. Which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord. We'll see it clarified here in section 132 that some plural marriages were authorized for David and Solomon, but not to the extent that they took it. Not with Bathsheba, with David. Not 300 wives and 700 concubines that were mostly political marriages and alliances for this massive harem to be an international king, so to speak, for Solomon. No. But in both of those instances, they, that was the falls of the kings of Israel. So Nephites... You are not justified. That was abomination for them and for you. Jacob goes on, powerful message at the end of Jacob chapter 2. He says, Wherefore, my brethren, hear me, hearken to the word of the Lord. For there shall not any man among you have save it be one wife. There's the rule, monogamy. Concubines, he shall have none. For I, the Lord God, delight in the chastity of women. And by definition, since women marry men, then he also delights in the chastity of men. There is no double standard here. There cannot be. Again, he repeats, whoredoms are an abomination before me. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. It's actually interesting if I could just take a quick aside on what seems like the double standard of plural marriage. And yes, there is a different standard, men and women, that men were allowed to marry more than one wife and women were not allowed to marry more than one husband at least not eternally. In those instances of polyandry, there was no living together in life. There was simply a thought of being sealed together in heaven. And so much of that was more of this dynastic connections where we're trying to bind families together. It's the, the history behind the practice of plural marriage is so complicated and complex. Uh, don't allow for the superficial approach to it. And trying to connect families together. And I can connect that family through marriage, this wife, in eternity. There's no sexuality, there's no living together in, in this life, go back home to your husband. But now your family is connected to my family. It's almost like the tribes of Joseph and the tribes of, of Brigham and the tribes of, uh, of Heber, uh, rather than simply some kind of marital connection between husband and wife. We can talk more about that as we go. But what's interesting, particularly for sisters, because my heart does go out, as all of ours should, or to the sisters that, that were called upon to live the law of, of plural marriage. Now, that's not to say the husbands... In fact, Helen Mar Whitney, uh, this same underaged girl, she's the one that... She, she did say it was just as hard for the men as it was for the women. What they were being asked to do in caring for... See, that's the difference between sexuality and family relationships. It, it bothers me to no end... In fact, it bothered the saints during the Utah period when they kept getting ridiculed and mocked and scandal, you know, just thrashed for plural marriage, where it's like, how dare you? You Eastern editors and politicians with your mistresses or your serial monogamy when it's marriage, but then divorce so you can get married again and then divorce so you can get married again. It's just, you're pra it's practical. In fact, uh, Andrew Johnson, Lincoln, Lincoln's successor, said, I'm not going to worry about the Utah problem. 
there's practical polygamy in Massachusetts too. Again, practical polygamy, where it's as if they're living it. Uh, Latter-day Saints at least are saying it's part of their faith. Uh, the, the issue here, though, as far as the difficulty of caring for families and not just finding sexual partners, again, that's why the ratio I thought was so powerful talking with this friend of mine. It's not all about sexuality. It's about spirituality. It's about family responsibility and taking care of all of that. So it was a, a difficult challenge for husbands as well. But that it says, but that's not to take away at all. It's not trying to equalize things. Uh, not trying to take away at all from just the gut punch to a woman having additional women within the relationship would be. We'll talk more about Emma as we get to the end of section 132. That just, brutal, brutal. Which is why I love the focus on women in Jacob chapter 2. Because the same God who reveals plural marriage to Joseph Smith is the God who reveals these truths to Jacob and, and translates these truths through Joseph Smith. So Joseph has this perspective too. Uh, again, it, whether, whether you're a believer and know that God is behind both voices or you're a skeptic and you think Joseph's just making it all up, well, fine. Look at Joseph's understanding of women and, and sexuality in Jacob chapter 2, where that seems to be his or Jacob's or God's, I would say all three, ultimate concern. He acknowledges women's pain primarily. Verse 31, I, the Lord, have seen the sorrow and heard the mourning of the daughters of my people because of the wickedness and abominations of their husbands. Verse 32, I will not suffer, saith the Lord of hosts, that the cries of the fair daughters of this people shall come up unto me against the men of my people, saith the Lord of hosts. 33, they shall not lead away captive the daughters of my people because of their tenderness. And 35, you have broken the hearts of your tender wives and lost the confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them. The sobbings of their hearts ascend up to God against you. Because of the strictness of the word of God, which cometh down against you, many hearts died, pierced with deep wounds. Before we dive into the specifics of plural marriage, I just want to honor the deep wounds that this causes, past and present, for students, sister students of mine and female friends who have wrestled with the, the fear of becoming a, the fear of passing away before their husbands. And if their widowed husbands end up getting remarried and sealed in the temple, then am I relegated to secondary status as a plural wife? These are hard things. But before we study them, I want to testify of a God who hears of the sobbings and recognizes the tenderness and the wounds of his daughters, his children, his little ones, those who suffer because of the mistakes of other people. I, I believe in that kind of God. I have had experience recognizing his love for the victims of sexual abuse, that he, of all people, knows what it's like to be an innocent victim. And that's not what is happening in plural marriage. The same being who warns of the strictness of his word when people are practicing it without authorization is the source of the strictness of a word that commanded certain people to do so. You get that sense, both sides of it, 
also in Jacob chapter 2. This is the passage we typically run to when it comes to plural marriage. We saw the rule in 27, not any man can have, save it be one wife, no concubines, and then the exception, verse 30. For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me. So that seems to be the justification for the exceptional circumstance. If I'm choosing to raise up seed, then I will command my people. Namely, command them to live plural marriage. Otherwise, now we're back to the rule, they shall hearken unto these things. See, that's what makes Jacob 2 verse 30 such an important text, but also such a tricky one, where it's like it establishes the rule. The rule is monogamy. But again, it allows for the exception. If I will raise up seed unto me. I mean, plural marriage is a great way to have a population boom if you're trying to create a family of the faith. So in Abraham... To have seed as the sea, as the sands of the sea or the stars of heaven. To have Jacob and the house of Israel be four wives, twelve sons. That's a pretty fast explosion. Now, it's actually interesting. You'll see, especially in Pioneer Utah, uh, in plural marriages, each individual wife tended to have fewer children. So it wasn't so much that the, the population of the, of the territory is exploding, but the population of certain families is. You, there's no way there's as many Youngs in the, in the church today, or as many Kimballs in the church today, or as many Taylors in the church, or as many Pratts in the church, uh, if it weren't for the plural marriage of a Brigham Young, or a Heber C. Kimball, or a Parley P. Pratt, or a John, a John Taylor. And so in terms of raising up seed, part of it is just population, but also part of it is the faithfulness of a population that is being asked to do something brutally difficult. I have ancestors that practiced plural marriage, and I don't apologize for that because I'm not ashamed by it. I am amazed that I have ancestors that were willing to lay their heart on the altar I am so relieved that I'm not asked to make that sacrifice, but I am, I am honored that I have ancestors that were willing to do that. When, when my Christian or Jewish friends are scandalized by plural marriage, like, people in your church used to practice plural marriage. I sometimes just laugh and I go, yeah, I know, it's yours too. And they're like, no, I'm not, huh? Well, you're Christian, right? Yeah. Or you're Jewish, right? Well, yeah. Well, what about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And they're like, well, no, 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 but that, that was Old Testament. That, I was like, well, but it's still, it's in your past. Yeah, mine's more recent, but you still have to grapple with that, don't you? Uh, Joseph was grappling with exactly that. How do you justify my assumption based on everything I've lived in culture, based on everything I've read in Scripture, but everything I've revealed through the Book of Mormon says the rule is monogamy. And the Lord would say, and that's exactly right. Keep it that way. But we need to talk about the exception, which is polygamy. By the way, the rule is also chastity, and there is no exception to that. So please remember that. Keep your ratios straight, okay? Don't hypersexualize. Understand its spirituality primarily. And so what does he do? I'm going to answer this, verse 2. So verse 3, prepare thy heart to receive and obey the instructions which I'm about to give unto you. For all those who have this law revealed unto them must obey the same. With that, I picture Joseph gulping, like, uh-oh, 
I don't know if I should have asked. Never mind. I'm good. <laughs> no, no, you asked. You, you need to know. But in fact, you need to know the big picture because the big picture is going to be glorious. The small picture, again, exceptions and rules. Joseph understands the rule. He's about to understand the exception. Even as he was practicing the exception, he, he, he reconfirmed the rule. At one point, he even said, I gave instructions to try those persons, like church court, you know, discipline. Try those persons who were preaching, teaching, or practicing the doctrine of plurality of wives. For according to the law, I hold the keys of this power in the last days. For there is never but one on earth at a time on whom the power and its keys are conferred. And I have constantly said, no man shall have but one wife at a time, unless the Lord directs otherwise. It, this had to be authorized. At one point, he even said to Hiram Smith, his own brother that he loved, adored, Hiram, you cannot seal people uh, without my authorization to begin with, or you will go to hell along with the people you've sealed. I mean, that's bold. We'll see some of that boldness, boldness later in 132. The brother he loved, and remember in 142, he's made the patriarch, he's given keys, he's, uh, what you seal will be sealed up. He's probably thinking, well, I, I thought I had the sealing power. And Joseph's like, not that sealing power. It, this, has, this is such a narrow exception that only I am authorized to give those exceptions. Same with Brigham Young. One person in Utah said, this is the order proposals usually take place. You ask Brigham first, the parents second, and the wife third. <laughs> we talk about needing permission all along the way. Well, Joseph was, the Lord was crystal clear. And Joseph was, was clear too of, no, this is so, such narrow parameters here. Because this one... Oh, if it spills over, this could spell disaster for everyone because it's such a, such a serious sin when done wrong and such an important law to keep when so commanded. So gulp or no gulp, Joseph, you need to understand this doctrine. Those who are given this, this law must keep it. Now, this, by the way, goes so far beyond just plural marriage. Like I said, plural marriage is the small umbrella under the big umbrella of eternal marriage. And what's interesting is starting now in verse 5, actually verse 4, excuse me, he's going to reveal, well, let's read it. Behold, I reveal unto you a new and an everlasting covenant, which in 31, we, 131, excuse me, the last section we read, is associated with the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Now, was it back section, was it 66? It says the new and everlasting covenant is the gospel. I mean, the whole thing. But the marriage part of the gospel, which is one of its most important things, I'm going to reveal that to you. So, I'll reveal a new and everlasting covenant. And if you abide not that covenant, then are ye damned. For no one can reject this covenant and be permitted to enter into my glory. Now, he's, it's hard to tell, but he has just pivoted from specific to general. He's not going to talk about plural marriage for another 30 verses. What he's going to talk about instead is celestial marriage, eternal marriage, eternal monogamy, first and foremost. Because that's the context. That's, you have to understand the big picture before you see this little example of it, the hard one, the one that, that nobody wants. Well, it's in the context of something everybody wants. So let me explain that. You see, that to me is, again, why I love the, the combination of these two in the same revelation. It's as if the Lord is saying, Joseph, I'm about to reveal to the saints two types of marriage that are 
incredibly foreign to them. One they're going to love, the other they're going to hate. But in some ways, they need to take the first one, the one they love, just as seriously as they take the second one, which they don't, they're not going to love. The second is going to give them this gut punch that lets them know just how serious they need to take my commandments regarding marriage and just how much self-sacrifice, self-discipline, putting God first, marriage itself is supposed to entail. Those that are going to live the rule aren't off the hook. And, and if, I'll put it this way. If the second type, the exception type, plural marriage, would require every ounce of Christianity within them to make it work, it's no less a demand in the rule. My own monogamous celestial marriage should require nothing less of me than the celestial plural marriages required of some of my ancestors. Does that make sense? It's like when we're trying to balance love and law with our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. If we're asking them to live the law of chastity, it should require no less of me to live the law of charity. If I'm asking them to live law, they have every right to ask me to live love. And the two of us to balance that with the same level of sacrifice and commitment and, and wrestling with our inner selves and our lesser human beings to become more like God in both law and love together. I, I, I pray the Spirit confirms that to you that marriage in the celestial vein, which is God's priority in section 132. Your question is about plural marriage, Joseph, I get that, but it, it makes no sense until you understand eternal marriage. Even in things like uh, Hiram Smith, whose first wife had passed away, and to be remarried, and when he learns about eternal marriage, and his question is not just for the wife I'm married to now, but what about the wife that I lost? I mean, for Hiram, the thought of eternal marriage had to include the thought of plural marriage. You can see similar things with President Nelson and President Oaks having lost a spouse to death that they raised children with and built the kingdom with and, and love and miss. How does it all work? I don't know what heaven's going to look like with all of that. I honestly don't. I talked to my own father-in-law, whose first wife passed away, having, leaving seven children behind. And his second wife brought three more children into the family and this amazing group of ten kids. And he's, he's told me, I don't know what it's going to look like. No idea. Uh, but I trust God. And I'm grateful for his kindness and his, the assurance that he gives me that relationships and sociality can be glorified. I, I'll leave the details with him. But please understand the context Plural marriage doesn't make sense without understanding celestial marriage, eternal marriage. And that's the one that applies to all of us. But please take your version, your marriage, as seriously as they were. And, and realize just how much effort and holiness and, and overcoming of the natural man or woman that it requires for us, just like for them. To put it bluntly, we are not getting off easy just because plural marriage is behind us and we live in the rule instead of the exception. Your marriage and mine deserve the very best that we can offer it. 
And that's what he's asking for here. Notice verse 5, all who will have a blessing at my hands, and there's no greater blessing than this one, eternal families, shall abide the law which was appointed for that blessing and the conditions thereof as were instituted from before the foundation of the world. Didn't we just learn that blessings come because they're predicated to law and it's by obeying the law upon which it's predicated that we receive these blessings? Well, the blessings of an eternal family we talked about this in section 128. This is a bold doctrine that we, that we believe in, that we can stare down death. Remember that story I told about raising Jairus' daughter? And the same level of faith and, and belief is required in the temple to stare down death and raise a couple from the grave. I mean, raising Jairus' daughter was just a single individual person that would later in life, as a sweet little old lady, I'm sure, would die. But to raise a couple from the grave and say, you never have to be separate again, what a blessing. And therefore, what a law. So let's explain what this law entails. Verse 6, as pertaining to the new and everlasting covenant, specifically this time of marriage, it was instituted for the fullness of my glory. And he that receiveth the fullness thereof must and shall abide the law, or he shall be damned, saith the Lord of God. And we'll see this idea of damnation as a cessation of progress. If, if the goal is to receive a fullness of God's glory, which is going to require a lot of growing up in God, an eternal progression just to get close to Him, He'll always be ahead. But to grow into that fullness, <clears throat> of course we're going to need eternal progression. And the only place that is possible is at the swing dance, <laughs> okay, where you have a partner with whom to progress and with whom to continue creating and growing into godhood. And so anything shy of that is damnation in the cessation kind of sense. We want fullness of glory. So verse 7, verily I say unto you that the conditions of this law are these. Now what he's going to read now, which is one of the longest single verses in the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a few other really, really long ones in this section too, will sound like a lot of legalese. And my brother's a lawyer. I always make fun of him for that. Uh, stereotypical lawyer jokes. But legalese is usually uh, an indication that somebody has tr found a loophole previously. And so you have a word and they're like, oh, so I can get around that one with some shifty semantics. No, I didn't do that. They're like, okay, fine. What did you do? Oh, you did that? Okay, then that's illegal too. And with enough cases and enough people trying to find loopholes to get around, you end up with all kinds of words that seem like synonyms. But they're just closing off, uh, again, loop, legal loopholes that somebody's going to try to work their way around. So how's this for legalese? All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations. Sound like legalese? Do we cover all the bases? Any, any synonyms we're missing? Well, any of those things that are not made and entered into and sealed. So there's, we're now we're, we're, we repeated all those nouns, now we're repeating verbs. Were they made? Well, were they entered into? Were they sealed? By the Holy Spirit of promise. So that's one of our first requirements. We, we saw that same idea about calling an election made sure back in 131. Do we have the Holy Spirit of promise ratifying this? Is it, you know, stamped in, 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 and notarized and, and put in triplicate, and then filed at the, at the recorder's office. Is it sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise? 
Here's the next, the next requirement. Of him who is anointed, so it has to be proper authority. Again, it was centered in Joseph Smith alone, both as well for time and for all eternity. So it's com combining both this life and beyond it. And that too, most holy. So this has to be sacred. It has to be holy. It has to be pure. By revelation, that's another requirement. It's got re revealed by God that this is what should take place. And commandment. So this, you have to be living in exceptional circumstance and the exception is going to come from God, the specific authority, not the general authority. Through the medium of mine anointed, again, through prophetic keys, whom I have appointed on the earth to hold this power. And he clarifies it again. And I have appointed unto my servant Joseph, Joseph to hold this power in the last days. And there is never but one on the earth at a time on whom this power and the keys of this priesthood are conferred. Okay, so are we good? Now, all of that was one big, long, seemingly run-on sentence to establish the, the parameters, look, close off all the loopholes, and describe all of the requirements for this contract, or as we would say, this covenant. And as long as all of those things are met, that's the first, end, the first half, then notice the end. Or I guess we should flip it. If any of those things are missing, because this is how he describes the end of it. If any of those side, if any of your side of the contract is unmet, then my side is unmet. The contract is null and void based on what you did. If I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but if you don't, you receive no promise. Well, here's the no promise clause at the end of verse 7. All those bonds and things are of no efficacy, virtue, or force in and after the resurrection from the dead. For all contracts that are not made unto this end have an end when men are dead. And as harsh as that sounds, everyone on earth tends to agree with that. Including in marriage, when the, the minister or the justice and the peace always says, till death do you part. There is, again, the bold doctrine we speak of. As I was talking to that sweet grandma, do you believe Joseph Smith has these keys? Well, no. I could have said, do you believe anyone has these keys? And she would have had to say, well, no, because I don't, I didn't even know that was a possibility that you could bind on earth and have it bound in heaven. I, no one, every person who performs a marriage admits their lack of power beyond the grave. They admit, I cannot stare down death and tell it to step aside so that this couple can remain together, which is why they always admit, till death do you part. Or if death sounds too harsh, as long as we both shall live. Or if that sounds too harsh, for the period of your mortal lives, it's all the same thing. Death ends things. Death voids contracts. Unless it's done in the Lord's own way. His way is, is very specific according to that legalese contract in verse 7. Because, verse 8, my house is a house of order, saith the Lord God. It's not a house of confusion. Verse 9, will I accept of an offering, saith the Lord, that is not made in my name? I mean, it's my law and it's my gift that I'm giving. If it's my blessing, of course, it's going to be predicated on my law. You can't just go around doing things your way and expect to... You're not dictating to deity. This is like Cain. Oh, fine. You want, you want an, a sacrifice, an offering? I have no faith in what my parents told me about the promise of some lamb without blemish that would someday sacrifice his blood for the sins of the world. So I'm not, I'm not going to sacrifice a sheep. I'll gather up some of the, 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 the fruit of the ground and you want an offer, offering? Fine. Here it is. But don't. I'm doing it on my terms instead of yours. 
Yeah, careful, Cain. There's no faith in that. There's no humility in that. There's no meekness and acceptance of God's rules in order to obtain God's blessings. If you, offer, if you give him an offering, it better be done in his way for him to accept it. Verse 10, or will I receive of your hands that which I have not appointed? It's like, that. no, that's, that's not how it works. It's not what I asked for. So 11, will I appoint unto you, saith the Lord, except it be by law, even as I and my father ordained unto you before the world was? You've always been able to trust me because I'm a Lord of law. I keep it all myself perfectly. So you can trust that I will keep my end of the covenant. I'm just asking you to keep your end too. You're not creating legal loopholes. I have closed them all. Then verse 12, I am the Lord thy God. And I give unto you this commandment, that no man shall come unto the Father but by me or by my word, which is my law, saith the Lord. Interesting twist on John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the law. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In some ways it's like, yeah, you have to come through Jesus, but you got to come on Jesus' terms. He's coming on the Father's terms. He's enforcing the law because he is the law. He wants you to follow the way because he is the way. And so honor that. Verse 13, here's his general principle. Everything that is in the world whether it be ordained of men, by thrones, or principalities, or powers, or things of name, whatsoever they may be. So whether it's the, your minister, or your bishop, or the justice of the peace, I don't care if it's the president of the United States. I don't care if it's a throne or a principality. The king pre presents you as man and wife. Huh? If it's not by me or by my word, saith the Lord. All those, the clarifications back in verse 7 then they shall be thrown down. That's strong language. Thrown down. Shall not remain after men are dead, neither in nor after the resurrection, saith the Lord your God. It doesn't matter by what earthly authority you have been bound. It has to be one who has the keys to bind on earth and have it bound in heaven. Only in that way do I ratify what's been done by those to whom I've given that authority. Verse 14, for whatsoever things remain are by me, and whatsoever things are not by me shall be shaken and destroyed. Now, you know me and my focus on trying to develop within each of us an unshaken faith. Well, that word shaken, of course it struck me. They actually do this sometimes in like civil engineering and things where they'll put something you made on this little earthquake table and it just shakes it like crazy to see if it will hold up under whatever magnitude earthquake the Richter scale says you're, you're going to face. And to see, will my marriage, and beyond that, just my covenants, will they stand the test of time? Will they stand the earthquakes in diverse places that we will have to endure in the last days? Or will they be shaken and destroyed? Remember that word destroyed, by the way. It's going to come up over and over in this revelation, and it's going to freak us out when it refers to, to Emma. Keep in mind what he's describing as far as shaking things until they just fall apart. There's that idea of destruction that the Lord is, is talking about. He's not there smashing buildings. He's not breaking the Legos. He's just shaking the ground underneath it to see if it will hold. Is it worth preserving in Hebrews 12, it says that the removing of those things that are shaken, 
as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. It's a little bit confusing the way it's phrased there, but the idea is there has to be shaking to be able to tell what's well built and what isn't. Uh, what will stand and what won't. When there was a massive earthquake in my hometown uh, as a freshman in college and I wrote, came back home during the summer, this was the Northridge quake of 1994, and driving through my neighborhood and there's a house and then an empty lot where a house used to be. And then a house with police tape around, do not cross because the house is condemned. And then another house that looked normal and just, they all looked normal the year before. But man, because of the shaking of the earth, you could tell which were built well and which were not. And so to see which marriages are well built, can it handle the shaking of difficult days? To see which covenants, which levels of discipleship are sufficiently well built to handle whatever they face? See, there's another great phrase in the Psalms that says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. You could expand that on anything that is built and can be shaken and potentially destroyed. If the Lord builds, unless the Lord builds your discipleship, you're working at it in vain. Unless the, the Lord builds your marriage and you involve him, the threefold cord, not quickly broken, then it will shake and fall apart with the, the turbulence of, of these last days. So how does this relate to marriage? Back to 15. Here's the till death do you part statement that every other authority, kings, principalities, whatever was listed back in verse 13, this is where they have to admit till death do you part. Therefore, if a man marry him a wife in the world, and he marry her not by me nor by my word, and he covenant with her so long as he is in the world and she with him. That's the as long as you both shall live. Their covenant and marriage are not of force when they are dead. And when they are out of the world, therefore they are not bound by the law when they are out of the world. And like I said, as harsh as that sounds, everyone admits that. It's tragic that the day they marry you is the day that they divorce you. Not that you're divorced that day, but the promise of ultimate separation is lingering in the air the very day they tell you that you're now one. That's, that's sad to me. When I see marriages, and when you work with young adults, you get lots of wedding invitations. They're awesome. Um, and seeing those that are performed outside the temple, I rejoice for the life that lies ahead of this couple in love. But there's always a piece of me that just wishes there were something more. A promise that went beyond the grave. Well, 16, therefore, when they are out of the world, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are appointed angels in heaven, which angels are ministering servants, to minister for those who are worthy of a far more and an exceeding and an eternal weight of glory. Now, that's an interesting verse. The first half points us back to a passage in Matthew that is really, really tricky. And I've had anti-Mormons throw in my face to say, see, there's no such thing as eternal marriage. You're making this kind of stuff up. In Matthew 22, you have all these, these Jewish leaders that are throwing a, a situation, a what-if situation in Jesus' face. They're using the law of leveret marriage, which was this idea from the Old Testament that if a couple gets married, they don't, can't have kids and the husband dies. It was so important to have children 
that to, so that your name would continue in Israel, that the wife would then was supposed to marry the, the next brother in the family. Levir comes from a Latin word meaning brother-in-law. So that's where leveret marriage comes from. So you marry the brother-in-law. And their first child belongs to the brother that died. So his name is perpetuated in Israel. If that brother dies and still no kids, you're supposed to marry the next. And if that dies, and then you go to the next. It goes through the whole family, all the brothers-in-law. And then, scary, at the end, if there's still no brothers-in-law, you start wondering, who's this woman? A black widow, right? Uh, but then she's supposed to marry the father, yikes, uh, and their first child then allows the name of the, that son to, to be perpetuated. Uh, glad we don't live that law either. Uh, and my wife's really glad for that as well. Well, the, the, the thing about, if the purpose is to have children, the all-important posterity piece of the Abrahamic covenant that makes them justify a, a, a very strange arrangement like leveret marriage, or in this case, justifies a very strange arrangement like plural marriage, the focal point is on posterity. And in that case, the ends do justify these means when God authorizes the means and only then. But the irony about that story is these leaders are throwing this an example of leveret marriage and they keep pushing it to the extreme. Oh, add another brother-in-law. Oh, how about another? How about another? And then they ask, they pose the question to Jesus. Well, whose, whose wife is she going to be in the next life since she technically was married to all kinds of different people? Well... Jesus' answer is really an interesting one. And it's one that anti-Mormons throw in our face when we try to defend or describe the doctrine of eternal marriage. I mean, we're not trying to justify plural marriage with this. We're just trying to explain celestial marriage. But the verse says this, Jesus responds and says, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures. That's always the problem. Nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So we're seeing the same thing here in verse 16. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. They're appointed angels in heaven. He's quoting it, which to me is really ironic because when, I mean, remember when we talked in section 20, uh, it feels like ages ago, uh, there's that seemingly, or that supposed prohibition at the end of Revelation where it's like, you can't add to scripture. And the fact that we reproduce that warning in the scripture that we added it's in section 20, is to me just hilarious. So when, an ad, when somebody says, the scriptures, the Bible says you can't add to the Bible. I'm like, oh, I know. Yeah, we're totally aware of that. In fact, we included that caution in the stuff that we added. And they're like, what? You're like admitting what you're doing is wrong? It's like, no, we're admitting that you've, inter you've misinterpreted that verse. Because technically, we're not adding in the way that John uh, forbids in the things that we're adding at God's requirement. Okay? Go back to 20 and we can talk about that. But here, it's a similar irony. If they were to say, no, no, no. The Bible says you, there's no such thing as eternal marriage. And we would laugh and go, oh, I know. We actually include that verse in the revelation about eternal marriage. And they'd be like, what? What do you, mm, you Latter-day Saints are so frustrating. Uh, you, you reproduce the, the prohibition in, in the exact place that you're breaking it? Well, no, we're not breaking it. You haven't understood the scriptures or the power of God. Deja vu. I mean, first of all, who was Jesus talking to? These weren't just Jewish religious leaders in general. The Matthew text takes, takes the pains to specify these are Sadducees that are asking. We usually hear from the, the Pharisees and the scribes, but 
this time the Sadducees? Why would they bring this up? The most, one of the most famous things about Sadducees is the fact they don't believe in the resurrection. So what's their question about? Their question isn't about eternal marriage. Their question is about resurrection. That's always what they're worried about. We don't believe in it. And so what are they trying to do? They're trying to create a what-if situation that makes the resurrection look incredibly messy to the point of it's better just to chuck the whole thing. And I'll admit, when we talk about eternal families, that can be messy too. Because like, what if she marries then, and then she dies on this, and he remarries, but the kids are in this about not. There's so many what-if questions with eternal families. I've sometimes joked with evangelical friends saying, yeah, I'll admit our heaven's a little messier. Because earth is messy. And if sociality is transferred and glorified, then yeah, I guess I have to leave some room for some messiness that God will make clean. Don't worry. But I'll admit, your heaven is simpler. If it's one angel per cloud per harp, uh, the ratios are really easy. Uh, maybe I'm a little envious of that simplicity. But I think I'll take the messiness and the complexity if it means I get to be with my family. Messiness and all. And how it all fit in this life and with this, that, and the other. and I don't know. I trust God. And I'll take, I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I'm not going to throw out the doctrine just because of some messy uh, mortal circumstances. The issue there is them trying to trump up this situation that makes the resurrection look like an impossibility. But the irony is, where would they even come up with a question about whose wife will she be in the resurrection? I mean, the question alone speaks of eternal marriage. Who's she, she was married to all these people in time. Who's she going to be married to in eternity? And to those who've attacked me with that verse, I've sometimes said, where would they even get that question if Jesus had never taught some kind of doctrine about eternal families? We don't see in the New Testament him doing it explicitly. I mean, we see Paul hinting at things like 1 Corinthians 11, 11 about Neither is the man without the woman nor the woman without the man in the Lord. But that's not enough to teach eternal families. But Jesus must have at some point taught enough of that, that, or even just Genesis, you know, if Genesis says that Adam and Eve were married in the garden before the fall, then that was one marriage that it didn't say till death do you part, because Adam and Eve would have been like, wait, till what do you part? What, what does that mean? That's not it. I have an unabridged dictionary. It's got all the animal names that I just listed. But the word death isn't in there. What does that mean? And the Lord's like, ah, well, you're going to find out. New edition of the dictionary coming up. But in the meantime, where death is not a possibility, you twain shall be one flesh. Marriage in Eden was by definition intended for eternity. That's just the fall that gets in the way of that, right? In more ways than one. Uh, personal as, as well as theological falls. What I'm trying to say is they wouldn't have been able to ask that question about the resurrection if Christ hadn't already taught something about eternal marriage. So, yeah, let's include that prohibition so, or what you thought it was right here. Because if it's not done in all the legalese we saw back in verse 7, if it's not done in the Lord's way uh, and by his power and one with authority to bind on earth and have it bound in heaven, then of course she's not going to be married to any of them. You haven't understood the scriptures or the power of God. It has to be done in his way. It's his law. And so she can't be. It has to be done by us 
that's not given, married or given in marriage in heaven. We're married and given in marriage in, in life. It's, it's part of the test. It's part of the challenge of it all. It's part of needing a, a physical body. Now, thankfully, in the temple, just like we do baptism for the dead, we can do ceilings for the dead, and we need to. But it needs to be done by us here so they can receive that blessing there because it's not done there. Okay? And then if you see it all in, by what he describes at the end of 16, powerful, powerful phrases, that the difference between a ministering servant, one of those angels in heaven, still celestial, but in one of the lesser degrees, the second or third, whatever differentiates that, compared to them, those who received the Abrahamic covenant renewed personally, those who received all three Ps through the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, that constitutes a far more and exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's something about that language that just presses itself upon me. Just how great the blessings are that God is promising the faithful. And to any of you who have not had the opportunity for that gift, prophets past and present have continually, continually reassured that none of those blessings will be withheld you. From whatever circumstance of mental, physical health, uh, sexual identity, you name it, nothing I'll put it this way, Joseph said to these mothers that had lost children, all of your losses will be made up to you in the resurrection. By the power of the Almighty, I have seen it. Understand what he's promised. If, if through no fault of your own, you haven't had that blessing, but you're living every law that you can, well, even the blessing predicated upon a law that you weren't given the opportunity to live, you'll receive that blessing. That's the promise. So don't feel like if I've gone through life without that, that opportunity, am I, am I shrugging off the eternal weight of glory? No, you're not. In some ways, perhaps your shoulders are being broadened and your back is being strengthened by the exact difficulties you're going through right now to be able to handle the eternal weight of glory that God wants to place upon you. Now, those who did have the opportunity and simply for whatever reason did not live up to it, verse 17 is for you. For these angels did not abide my law, therefore they cannot be enlarged, but remain separately and singly without exaltation, but in their saved condition for all eternity. And from henceforth are not gods, but are angels of God forever and ever. Now, lowercase g, gods, that's the promise, and we'll see that later in this revelation too. But angels, in some ways it's Aaronic versus Melchizedek, since Aaronic is angels and Melchizedek is God. Uh, what are you living up to? Now, you're still celestial. You're still in the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's still that, that kingdom of greatest glory. It's just no increase. It's what we learned in section 131. And, and that is a loss of a far more and exceeding and eternal weight. Even within the celestial kingdom, that differentiation is, is infinite, it, it seems. Separate and single, in a saved condition, but without an exalted one. There's an irony here. I've sometimes written this on the board, and I've said, salvation without exaltation equals damnation. And then it's like, try to make sense of that. 
And it's like, wait, wait, how can salvation equal damnation? Can I be damned in a saved state? Well, if we picture damnation as cessation, like we talked about, no way to increase, no, cannot be enlarged, then yes, despite the fact I'm saved, even in celestial glory, in a way I'm damned. I always laugh about, about uh, Lake Powell. If you're in Utah, my students love Lake Powell. They call it liquid heaven. But what is Lake Powell? It's just damned water. Now, it doesn't pollute it. It doesn't make it better. It's glorious, right? And a, a damned person in the celestial kingdom is a glorious existence. It's just, it doesn't keep flowing. It doesn't go on to eternal increase. And those are choices that we're making here and now. Now, again, let me reiterate it one more time. If you've been withheld that blessing or that opportunity in this life, it, the blessing won't be withheld you in the other. Go back to section 124, right? You tried to build the temple. All these obstacles got in your way. I will honor the will for the deed. And I will give you other places to build other temples later on. I will give you other ways to prove your worthiness of the blessing that you couldn't, that you couldn't receive because of outside circumstances. All of this is, it comes together. It's so true here. But are we striving? Are we trying for that? Do we want an eternal weight of glory? I remember in the days leading up to my wife and I sealing in the San Diego temple and really pondering these verses and knowing I was stepping into an empty jar, as we talked about before, uh, that God was going to give us the chance and the promise of sealing whatever we filled that jar with. And I, I wrote something down that as I read now, 22 years of marriage later, I still smile at as far as my my youthful naivete, but also my youthful faith in the promises that God had, had given us. I wrote this. When Christ met the rich young ruler, he found in him only one thing lacking. In order to attain that one thing and the eternal life that would follow, the Savior told him to give up all that he possessed. Ministering angels could likewise be told, one thing thou lackest, eternal marriage. And as with the sacrifice asked of the rich young ruler, surely eternal marriage is worth giving all that we have. Our money, our time, effort, talent, sacrifice, forgiveness, meekness, and every other God-given attribute or possession. Ministering angels are worthy of the celestial kingdom and immortality in the presence of God, but not in the highest degree, not eternal life as God experiences it, not eternal increase. Of the many mansions in the Father's house, they find that theirs cannot be remodeled or added on to. No wonder eternal marriage is given such doctrinal depth compared to the scriptural scarcity of information on ministry and angelhood. God seldom spends much time describing what for us shouldn't be an option. In fact, whenever the lower degrees of the celestial kingdom or their inhabitants are mentioned, it's not to show how much higher they are than the terrestrial kingdom but how much lower they are than the top. Those that fail to marry in the temple or live up to the covenants made therein miss out on much more than mere celestial square footage. They rob themselves of a far more and an exceeding and an eternal weight of glory. They are angels, not gods. They get the castle, but not the crown. Now, again, with 22 years of time since I wrote that in my journal, my heart 
has gone out repeatedly to people who probably condemn themselves on the basis of 17 and consign themselves to eternal separateness and singlehood. Trust in a God who loves you. Do the very best that you can in whatever circumstances you find yourself in. And to borrow that language from Isaiah 56 that I've quoted before, to any who feel marginalized, to any who feel that they don't fit into a family church, as we sometimes call it, remember the promise God made to those eunuchs in Israel who feared the same thing. God has something better for you than sons and daughters. Now, in the eternal worlds, of course, it will include sons and daughters, but whatever he's promising is better than what you can imagine. Hold on to that. Now, verse 18, let's get back to some of this legalese. Because our first instance was in verse 15. If you don't get married, if they say till death do you part, then you just admitted it. You know it's going to be till death do you part. Well, okay, fine. How's this for a loophole? Just don't say it. Don't say till death do you part. Let's just assume it's eternal because every love song and, and love poem seems to suggest that we're going to be together forever. So let's just believe that. Verse 18, and again, so let me repeat. Verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife and make a covenant with her for time and for all eternity. Ah, huh, you included the phrase. If that covenant is not by me or by my word. Uh-oh, you're going up against the... The requirements back in verse 7. Not by me, not by my word, not by my law, then it's not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. If it's not through him whom I have anointed and appointed unto this power, so all of those requirements that we mentioned earlier, then sadly it is not valid, neither of force, when they are out of the world. Because they're not joined by me, saith the Lord, neither by my word, when they are out of the world. It cannot be received there. Because the angels and the gods are appointed there by whom they cannot pass. They cannot, therefore, inherit my glory, for my house is a house of order, saith the Lord God. Now, there, that's an interesting one, because it's like, well, who's going to say time and all eternity? Except the sealer in the temple. Well, like I said, every poet, uh, every lyricist, everyone who knows what love feels like in this life, of course you want it to go forever. There's something inside us that... <laughs> that believes in the truth. If it was established from before the foundation of the world, of course we came believing it and just need the Spirit to bring it to our remembrance that it's always been that way. I, I remember as a missionary, the fourth discussion was where we taught eternal marriage. And especially if it was a loving family, a loving couple, I was so excited to teach that doctrine because I was just waiting for, I'm like, okay, companion, drum roll, please. And you hit the drum roll while I'm about to reveal this earth-shattering truth that's going to change their lives. And I always had that perspective. And then I would teach eternal families. Your, your marriage can be eternal. You, can be, you, you don't have to be separated by death. But instead of the symbol crash I was expecting and this <gasps> gasp of grateful realization, instead they just kind of look at me like, well, duh. Uh, yeah. I'm like, no, no, no. Did you not hear me? You can be together forever. And they're like, well, yeah, of course we can. I'm like, no, no, no. You, you don't believe that. They're like, no, we, we've always believed that. No, you haven't. Yes, we have. No, you haven't. And it's like, okay, you believe it. Does your church? Well, of, of course. Don't, don't they? Have you ever heard it taught 
in your church? Have you ever done anything to make that a reality? What did they say when you were married? Oh, wait, wait, did, did they mean that till death do you part? Yeah, that's an admission of their power to stare down the grave. And I can't blame them. Who can do that? Well, sealers can. Those given the power, the prophet, and those to whom he delegates it, now that the church is too big for the prophet to do it all himself. You understand what, what's happening here? I actually remember my, my parents, my dad was a state president, uh, my mom was a school teacher. There was just all, they knew a lot of people in our town. They'd lived there for like 20 years. And I remember in high school, I believe, I saw, they always got wedding invitations and they'd stick them up on the calendar so they knew and they'd go to the receptions and stuff. And I remember one, most of these were all from Latter-day Saints. And it was usually, they're going to be sealed for time and all eternity in the Los Angeles, California temple or wherever temple they happened to go. But I remember seeing one that said, so-and-so and so-and-so are going to be sealed for time and all eternity in the chapel by the sea in you know, Marina Del Rey or just some, and I was like, what? I was so confused that I was like asking my parents, who are these, who's this couple? And as I did a little homework, uh, because I was so struck, sealed for time and all eternity at the chapel by the sea, what? And what turn, turns out, it was a couple, non-members, that had lots of member friends. And had probably received so many wedding invitations that said, sealed for time and all eternity, that they were like, man, that sounds really cool. That our marriage, our love is so deep that we're sealing ourselves together for time and for all eternity. I love the sound of that. And to me, it's like you take verse 18 and it's like, well, of course you like the sound of it. The sound of it confirms everything that is deepest and dearest to you. But unless it's done in God's own way, because his house is a house of order, then it's not ratified. It's not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. You can't be sealed for time and all eternity by the chapel, by the sea. So what are we left with? We're left with 19, which I think is the longest verse ever. <laughs> okay, It's a beautiful one. And again, so let me repeat myself. Third example. Verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law, and by the new and everlasting covenant, and it is sealed unto them by the Holy Spirit of promise, by him who is anointed, unto whom I have appointed this power and the keys of this priesthood, and it shall be said unto them, ye shall come forth in the first resurrection, and if it be after the first resurrection, in the next resurrection, now that's tricky because we think of, well, there's the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. How does, wait, the next one? I don't want to be resurrected of the unjust. Well, don't get ahead of yourself. Uh, it's still all part of the first resurrection. Uh, it's just, was it at the time of Christ? Uh, was it at the beginning of the millennium? Are you changed in the twinkling of an eye somewhere during the millennium? All of that is still part of the first resurrection. So you're okay, okay? Then go on. What's the promise to them? They shall inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, powers, dominions, all heights and depths. Then it shall be written in the Lamb's book of life. Now he interrupts the flow here with a strange phrase that can, don't, don't let it trip you up. That he shall commit no murder whereby to shed innocent blood. And if ye abide in my covenant and commit no murder whereby to shed innocent blood, 
It shall be done unto them in all things whatsoever my servant hath put upon them in time and throughout all eternity. Now let me come right back to that innocent blood thing. We're going to see it several more times in the rest of this revelation. But if you can kind of pull it out of that verse just long enough that it doesn't confuse you or derail you, then he finishes with that great promise of all things in time and eternity, they shall be of full force. Compare that to thrown down. Full force when they are out of the world. They shall pass by the angels and the gods, lowercase g, which are set there to their exaltation, not just salvation, and glory in all things, as hath been sealed upon their heads, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever and ever. That's exaltation without the, uh, without the, the damnation that mere salvation entails. Continuation is what it's all about. Exaltation equals continuation. Mere salvation equals cessation. That's as far as you want it to go. Now, what's up with that innocent blood and murder and so on? According to this verse, 19, that seems to be the deal breaker. Okay? As long as that didn't happen, then you're okay as far as these promises are concerned. Now, I want to explain more about that when we get to verse 26 and 27. Okay? But hold on to that thought. It's just the, the, the deal breaker idea. If you, don't make the, if, if you don't bump up against the deal breaker, then what's the promise? Verse 20, then shall they be gods, lowercase g, because they have no end. Therefore shall they be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue. Then shall they be above all because all things are subject unto them. Then shall they be gods, lowercase g again, because they have all power and the angels are subject unto them. That's what we're aiming for. The rest of this column then just focuses on that. But you've got to keep the law to receive that level of a blessing, that eternal weight of glory. 21, verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye abide my law, ye cannot attain to this glory. And it's not just that you didn't have the certificate. You don't have the dance partner. It's not that you didn't just check a box on a prerequisite. You don't have the person with whom you can fulfill the essence of that eternal life. 22, straight is the gate, narrow the way that leadeth unto the exaltation and continuation of the lives. Few there be that find it, because ye receive me not in the world, neither do ye know me. Interesting how he connects the, the marriage in the first half of 22 to finding and following him at the end. It's, it's all about discipleship, not just matrimony. Am I following Jesus? in the way I treat one another, especially the way I treat the person with whom I'm sealed for time and all eternity. And do I, am I living, treating them in such a way they want to spend eternity with me? 23, but if ye receive me in the world, then shall ye know me, and shall receive your exaltation, that where I am ye shall be also. You won't be a stranger to me, and therefore won't be a stranger to your spouse. 24, this is eternal lives plural, yours as well as your spouse's, yours as well as your infinite increase of posterity through the eternities, to know the only wise and true God and Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent. I am he. Receive ye therefore my law. You see, in the middle of all this conversation about coming to know one another as husband and wife eternally, it's all about coming to know Christ. Life eternal. This is John 17, 3. Eternal life is knowing God, the Father and the Son. 
And part of eternal life is knowing your spouse and knowing your spouse knows the Father and the Son just as well as you do. It's that great triangle with God at the top, but husband and wife at the bottom. And if I ever intend to become one with them horizontally, it only happens as we shrink this triangle until the two of us become one with him and there and only there one with each other. That's what we're after, coming to know the Savior. Verse 25 is the flip side. Broad is the gate and wide the way that leadeth to the deaths, plural, death of each individual, death of the couple, death of the family relationship, no sociality there. Many there are that go in thereat because they receive me not, neither do they abide in my law. They, they didn't bring their partner to the dance. They haven't lived up in such a way that the partner wanted to come and dance with them. We haven't come to know Christ well enough to live as he did. So 26, let me say it all over again. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man marry a wife according to my word, they've done it the right way, they are, and they are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. There's that, that confirming seal upon them. According to mine appointment, and he or she shall commit any sin or transgression of the new and everlasting covenant, whatever, and all manner of blasphemies, and if they commit no murder wherein they shed innocent blood, yet they shall come forth in the first resurrection and enter into their exaltation. But they shall be destroyed in the flesh and shall be delivered unto the buffetings of Satan unto the day of redemption, saith the Lord God. Now that's a really tricky verse. If I wasn't doing verse for verse and wanted to skip one, I think that would be the one I'd skip. Uh, it's really, really hard. In fact, Joseph Fielding Smith said that that's one of the most abused passages in all of Scripture. Because it makes it sound like, hey, the seal is so strong that as long as you don't murder somebody, you're good. No matter, even if you blaspheme and commit any manner of iniquity, don't worry, uh, you've been sealed in the temple, so everything else is good to go. Now, that can't possibly be true. That's one of the examples of cherry-picking a verse, resting it to your own destruction, and then avoiding letting any other voice in the cloud of witnesses raise up to go, oh, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, don't forget my verse too. Like all the verses about repentance and all the verses about the Lord not being able to look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, all the verses about God's justice and so on. No, and, and uh, Joseph Fielding Smith says this too. You have to read 26 with an understanding that repentance is, is implied, it's understood, it's part of the process. I mean, you don't get to this point without faith unto repentance and being baptized unto repentance and repenting your way through enduring to the end, okay? I mean, even when it says the buffetings of Satan unto the day of redemption, there's no redemption absent repentance, a relationship with Christ. In the context of everything he's been saying about keeping my law and coming to know Christ, surely we know Christ well enough to understand he doesn't just turn a blind eye to our iniquity. Okay? But please don't try to justify, eh, I was sealed in the temple, so I'm guaranteed. No, that event did not make your calling and election mature. In fact, having your calling and election made sure still doesn't guarantee that you won't commit any other sins. It's just an understanding that, of course, I will continue living a life of repentance. The issue here is, well, a couple of things. Number one, will I still sin in my marriage? Or will I be, do I have to be perfect in it? See, here's the thing about 26. <laughs> Actually, compare this. In 19, it talks about the Holy Spirit of promise. 
and 26, it mentions the Holy Spirit of promise too. But what the, promise, what the Spirit is sealing is slightly different in each one. And I, I hope I'm not reading too much into this. But in 19, it talks about the, the marriage itself, and it says, and it is sealed unto them by the Holy Spirit of promise. So it, the ordinance, the covenant that you made, the, the marriage ceremony. 26, then, it talks about the man and the wife. And it says, and they are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And I wonder, is there a difference between it is sealed and they are sealed? Remember when we talked about, here's the, the empty jar, and now you need to fill it? Or you just had the, the celestial wedding, now you need to follow it with a very, very long celestial marriage? Uh, the, the two halves of the whole are required. I, I get a sense in 19 and 26, that same idea, that it, the ceremony, had the seal of approval on it. But what about they, the two partners in the relationship? Are they living in such a way that the Spirit, Holy Spirit of promise can seal them? I don't just accept what you did. I now accept who you've become. And when you put those two together, now that is a marriage worth perpetuating in eternity. Now, will it be a perfect marriage? No. But will it be one that is infused with repentance and hope for redemption? It's amazing how much a couple can go through and how many mistakes can be made as long as there still is a desire to repent and forgive. To understand our need for grace from God for each of us individually and our great need for grace from one another in this marriage. As long as they don't commit murder wherein they shed innocent blood. Now with that one, what does, what does he mean by that? Now, 27 clues us into that. Before we get there, just this delivered under the buffetings of Satan and, and so on. I, I would say this. It's amazing just how strong the bond of a ceiling can be. It can withstand anything if you'll repent. Now, remember, the path to repentance is often paved with pain because of the damage we've done to ourselves and to other people. It's not irredeemable. It can be fixed. But man, life is hard along the way. Remember section 19, if you don't repent, you'll have to suffer like I did. And that was unimaginable. So buffetings of Satan destroyed in the... You might be destroying yourself and one another in the short term because of the way you treat each other. But if you'll repent, then in the day of redemption, you can be redeemed and the covenant can still hold. You've done all kinds of damage to yourself and your relationships along the way. But if you'll strive to fix them, or more accurately, strive to invite me back into your life individually and back into your marriage and family, as Howard W. As Howard w. Hunter used to say, everything Jesus touches, he heals. If he'll touch your marriage, he'll heal it. Just bring him back. Now, 27 I think that's what he's getting at with this, blas this, this blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. Because as he brings up this all manner of blasphemies, any sin or transgression, what he's referring to is what Jesus taught in Matthew about as long as you don't sin against the Holy Ghost, everything else can be forgiven, even blaspheming the Son of God. In fact, that's one of the things that Joseph Ealing Smith says about verse 26. It's like, why are we always resting this to our destruction when he's basically just saying the same thing Jesus said in Matthew about 
All kinds of sins are forgivable, but not the unpardonable sin. Not denying the Holy Ghost, which, as we've said before, is not simply oh, ignoring a prompting. That, that's not denying the Holy Ghost. We saw this in section 76. What makes a son of perdition a son of perdition? It's staring into the sun and denying that it's shining. It's, it's crucifying Christ afresh and, and opening him to an open, or and, uh, exposing him to an open shame. It's denying Jesus when you absolutely know full well who he is. And that's far beyond anything that we could possibly commit in this life. We just don't know enough. So notice 27. That seems to be what he's hinting at. The blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, which shall not be forgiven in the world, nor out of the world, is in that he commit murder, wherein he shed innocent blood. Hmm. Remember that phrase? And assent unto my death, after ye have received my new and everlasting covenant, saith the Lord God. And he that abideth not this law can in no wise enter into my glory, but shall be damned, saith the Lord. Now we get Oh, that's what you meant by murder and shedding the innocent blood. The innocent blood. And, and whose blood matters most? Christ's. And who is the only truly innocent person? Christ. And so, even back in verse 19, when he talks about shedding innocent blood, or 26 or 27, this all seems to be not murder, uh, in terms of a human being taking another human life. That, I mean, that's a brutal sin because there's no restitution. Alma 39 ranks it just underneath this one of denying the Holy Ghost. But Alma doesn't say it's impossible to be forgiven, simply that it's really, really hard. This one's impossible to be forgiven because you never would seek forgiveness. I mean, you know he can do it. You know he's the risen son of God. You'd just rather crucify him all over again. That's Lucifer. That's perdition himself and his sons who grow up to be like father, unfortunately. I understand what, what's happening here is in some ways, everything that we've been reading from well, throughout all this is Christ has to be a part of the relationship. Jesus is the glue. His redemption is what allows the friction in marriage to be, to be resolved in repentance and love. But Jesus has to be a part of it. And as we've talked before about sons of perdition, and as long as Christ is with me, remember that phrase from Mosiah, as often as my people repent, I will forgive them. So it's not about a number of how many times have you done it. The question is, is a relationship. Are you still my people? We're not checking bank accounts. We're we're looking at relationships. We're not calling our accountant. We're calling our marriage therapist. Is Jesus still... Am I still one with him? Am I still the bride of Christ? Because as long as that's true, then no amount of debits on my side will offset the credits on his. I'm not presuming upon his grace. I'm just relying upon a relationship. One that I, that I weaken and then strive to strengthen every time I, sin, I repent of those sins that I committed. The same holds true within a couple, within a marriage, within a family. Have we, have we kicked Christ out of our relationship? I mean, I alluded to that phrase from Ecclesiastes before, that a threefold cord is not quickly broken. 
It's what I love about a marriage, that it's not a matter of two, it's a matter of three. Me, my spouse, and the Savior. And only when that triangle becomes one do all of us become one together. The problem in marriages that I see that, that struggle, typically, is that they kicked out Christ first. And after that, it's often only a matter of time that they kick out the other person. And so we cannot afford to shed that innocent blood. We cannot kick Christ out of our relationship. This is the ultimate sense as far as son of perdition is concerned. But even in our smaller, smaller case, make sure Christ is a part of your marriage. He then goes on, verse 28, I am the Lord thy God, and will give unto thee, Joseph Smith, the law of my holy priesthood, as was ordained by me and my father before the world was. This whole law of eternal marriage that I'm giving you. He's going to use Abraham as an example. And Abraham then becomes our pivot point to go from eternal marriage, father of the faithful, to specifically plural marriage, which he practiced as he began that dispensation and which Joseph is being called upon to practice as he begins this one. He says in 29, Abraham received all things whatsoever he received by revelation and commandment. By my word, saith the Lord, and hath entered into his exaltation and sitteth upon his throne. Keep going. Verse 30, Abraham received promises concerning his seed. So we're talking family situation here. Of the fruit of his loins, from whose loins ye are, namely my servant Joseph. So we're talking your family tree which were to continue so long as they were in the world. Remember, in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That sharing the gospel is, is the family business. Uh, and an Abrahamic identity is what pushes us out to share the gospel with all the world. That was the case for Joseph and those early saints. So it continues so long as they were in the world. And as touching Abraham and his seed, out of the world they should continue. Both in the world and out of the world, should they continue as innumerable as the stars? Or if you were to count the sand upon the seashore, you could not number them? I mean, yes, now with the passage of, of millennia, Abraham's literal posterity in the world are, are practically innumerable. But not quite innumerable. It's a huge number, but I don't think we've reached sand and star status quite yet. That's why we have to combine not just in the world, but out of the world. It still continues. That's what the Abrahamic covenant is for him and for you, seed of Abraham, Joseph, and the rest of us. 31, this promise is yours also, because ye are of Abraham. And like I said, when we're sealed, we, we made that, that covenant is renewed on, on us personally. The promise was made unto Abraham. And by this law is the continuation of the works of my Father, wherein he glorifieth himself. So, where, where does that leave you, Joseph? 32. Go ye, therefore, and do the works of Abraham. Enter ye into my law, and ye shall be saved. And flip side, 33. If ye enter not into my law, ye cannot receive the promise of my Father, which he made unto Abraham. Now, 33 shifts to 34, and that's where we see our pivot. That's when we go from the general principles of eternal marriage to the specific instance of plural marriage. Because he's going to talk about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and so on. And from then, in some ways, it's like God went on this great tangent, as we see Scripture often doing. Oh, you had a question about 
justifying Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others with plural marriage? Okay, I'll get there. I promise. And he goes from like verse 1 to verse 34 and starts to explain. But what's he do in the middle? I need you to understand this in context of eternal marriage because that's just a, a momentary subset. The, the big picture, the, the rule applies across the board throughout time and it is glorious. But even as he makes this shift, did you catch the focal point for Abraham? I mean, he talks about blessings and seed and posterity and exaltation and in the world and out of the world. That's, that's the lens through which you have to view your own marriage and how you need to view this Again, look at plural marriage through the lens of the big picture. Also look at it through this. Remember in verse 29, key words like revelation and commandment. From the very beginning, you need to understand plural marriage through the lens of revelation and commandment. Spirituality more than sexuality. Religion more than romance. That this was an Abrahamic trial unlike any they'd ever been through. Remember when Joseph's in Liberty Jail and he's pleading with God for a ram in the thicket? When he's saying through the Missouri persecution years, we ha if we're ever going to be weighed in the balance with Abraham, we need to endure similar trials. Well, little did he know, well, he's learning. <laughs> he had learned. He'd tried. He's, he knows he has to live more. The ultimate Abrahamic test was going to be this. And in this one, the hand was not stayed. I mean, it's interesting, the, the gut checks with Abraham. How, how much do you trust that I can keep my covenant? Take the one son of promise through whom the promises will flow and offer him as a sacrifice. According to the letters of Paul, Abraham had no intent of waiting for an angel to stay his hand. He fully intended to go through with it, the sacrifice. How on earth is God then going to keep his, his covenant if the child of promise is now dead on the altar? According to the New Testament, Abraham believed that he would then raise him from the dead. That's incredible faith. I'll kill him and then raise him. Because I know that's what happens with Jesus. That he'll be raised from the dead too. That's how you stare down death. That's how you make the impossible possible. You see it happen, and Jesus did it himself. Well, with this idea of Abraham, to do the works of Abraham, to understand what God asked of him and what he's asking of us, it's coming by, by revelation, it's coming by commandment. And until I know that, until I receive the command and have it confirmed by God, then this does seem like an impossible task. Back to Helen Mar Whitney. Again, such a fitting connection that the one that gets most sensationalized is also one of the women who talks most about it and always confirms that it was the will of God. She said that Joseph Smith told her and others that the practice of this principle would be the hardest trial the saints would ever have to test their faith. This is our Abrahamic trial. Will we pass it? Another woman who lived during the, the Utah period of plural marriage, she put it this way, my husband and I both believed in this principle and both desired to practice it. We both felt within our very souls that the time had come when it was our duty to obey the principle no matter what results might follow. The call had come 
And we had to obey it. Sound like Abraham with Isaac? Sound like Sarah with Hagar? I am thankful, this sister went on. I felt as strongly as he did. Otherwise, when the test came, I might have faltered. And then, kind of peering through futurity to speak to her descendants, this amazing sister saint said this, I want to bear testimony to my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. That includes all of us, basically, by extension. That I know to the very depth of my being that this order of marriage is true and that it was revealed from God and I thank my Heavenly Father for my testimony. Let me say to you, as my mother said to her children, since by this stage there had been multiple generations of plural marriage, her mom said to her, never say you do not believe it, nor tear it down. Rather say you do not understand it. Oh, I think that is valuable advice from this personification of all of our ancestors. I knew even when you don't have to. Please don't misjudge us. This came by revelation and by commandment, just like that did to Abraham. If you don't understand it, fine. It's really hard to understand, especially if you haven't been given the commandment and therefore haven't received a personal revelation that it is right in your case. But please trust in my revelation, she's saying. Trust in my obedience to a commandment. That was a gut punch, but one that God prepared us for. Now, were they perfect at living it? Far, far from it. I love how Amasa Lyman described it. We obeyed the best we knew how, and no doubt made many crooked paths in our ignorance. That's for sure. There were crooked paths in their implementation. There were crooked paths in their explanation. There were crooked paths in their, in their participation in this practice. It's messy, just as monogamy is. I've tried to do the best I could in my marriage, and my wife would be the first to agree with me that it's been a crooked path as, we, as we've tried to figure things out, as we've tried to raise our children imperfectly, and all the challenges that we face and so on, none of us get it right. And neither did all of them. But what's ironic, again, if we tie it back into Abraham, they didn't always get it right either. In fact, if you look at verse 34, where he begins to explain plural marriage, whose example does he start with? Same one Joseph first asked about. God commanded Abraham, and Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to wife. Why did she do it? Because this was the law. And from Hagar sprang many people. This, therefore, was fulfilling, among other things, the promises. So even Ishmael, the non-covenant son, is still fulfilling promises to Abraham because posterity, again, it's so, this is all in the basis of posterity. It's family situations that we're talking about. That's what Jacob was talking about. If I will raise up seed unto me. But this idea of a commandment given, a law extended, and people imperfectly but valiantly striving to live it. If you go back, we'll see it next year. If you go back and see the, that implementation in the example of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, and then of Ishmael and Isaac, and then of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, it's messy. 
And I'm so grateful for that messiness because it reassures me about the messiness of this period of church history and the messiness of my own life and my own marriage and my own family life. It's like, I'll put it this way, you see a Sarah offer Hagar to Abraham and my heart goes out to, to Sarah for doing it because she knew the promise to Abraham just as well as Abraham did. But if the seed was supposed to come through Abraham and according to our culture, Plural marriage is allowable. God has, has offered that as a possibility. Just like leveret marriage, our culture allows for other ways outside the box thinking because posterity is the most important thing. That's the tragedy. For us, personal fulfillment or individual uh, gratification or, or sexual experience, that's become the all-important thing. And so now we start thinking outside of all of history's boxes so we can allow for the accomplishment of that ultimate goal. If the ends justify the means, and in those days the ends was family, posterity, keeping covenant, then exceptions like leveret marriage or plural marriage were, ends, were means that ju were justified by that end. Sadly, in our day, hyper-individuality, a certain narcissistic focus on self, a desire for sexual fulfillment and, and no responsibility to grow out of it as a result. Uh, sexuality in the absence of procreation, then no wonder we are opening boxes, inclu including of the Pandora's type, to honor any kinds of means that accomplish those all important ends. Oh, be careful there. But in those days, you picture a Sarah, oh, my heart breaks for her. God promised posterity to my husband. And I can't give it to him, which means I must be the weak link in the chain. And so this incredible self-sacrifice on her part, then take my handmaid, take Hagar. And you at least will have posterity. That I can claim in a roundabout way, but... I'll get out of your way. Incredible self-sacrifice. What's equally important in the story of Sarah, though, is that she agreed, she offered Hagar on her best day. And unfortunately, best days are often followed by not-so-good days. Have you ever done this where this, you were so infused with the Spirit that you did something superhuman, or at least supernatural man or woman, you forgave someone that you thought you never could, and you felt so good about that, but then you kind of come down from the mountaintop, and a few days later you're like, what? Why did I let them off so easy? Or in a moment of superhuman generosity, you sign a, a check for fast offerings that's way too generous, and a week later you're like, what have I done? In a way, that was Sarah with Hagar. And in a way, that's Emma. Where there are moments of of superhuman self-sacrifice where they agree and obey this gut-wrenching commandment. And then times you descend back to your normal level and think, I can't do this. We all do that in our marriage or in our ch church callings or on our mission. And it's, can I really be as good as I planned to be? Can I really live up to the covenant that I said I would keep? Well, to watch Sarah and Hagar and the conflict and friction between them is reassuring to me. To see 
the conflict and friction between Isaac and Ishmael, because they're human, to watch a Jacob play favorites with Rachel, because I never planned on Leah. And then Leah kind of shoving it in Rachel's face that I can have kids and you can't. So take your favorite wife status and understand what I'm saying. There's humanity in the Old Testament and humanity in the Doctrine and Covenants. Remember how many mistakes of Joseph are canonized in Scripture? Well, I'm glad my mistakes aren't canonized, but they're just as glaring to me. And to recognize and wrestle with my humanity to try to live up to the divinity that's within me also. You, you see plenty of that here in the original examples, and you see plenty of it in the examples of those early saints. There were couples and, and extended families that, I mean, there's a recent uh, biography of Parley P. Pratt and a whole chapter on his plural marriage. And of all the families that lived it, the Pratts seemed to do it really, really well. Uh, it's amazing just the, the way they handled things and the approach they took. Others, it was really, really brutal. It was, it was a sacrifice of self for everyone. Uh, but to see, again, this example that they are trying to follow in all of its, its <laughs> the elevation of, their, of their, their best feelings and their attempts, as well as the, the struggles and difficulties that they all faced, like we all do. Well, keep, keep reading. 35, was Abraham therefore under condemnation for doing something God commanded? Fairly I say unto you, nay, for I the Lord commanded him. 36, Abraham was commanded to offer his son Isaac. So let's use that example too. Nevertheless, it was written, thou shalt not kill. Abraham, however, did not refuse, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Another example, Abraham received concubines, and they bore him children. And it was accounted unto him for righteousness, because they were given unto him. And he abode in my law, as Isaac also and Jacob did none other things than that which they were commanded. And because they did none other things than that which they were commanded, they have entered into their exaltation according to the promises, and sit upon thrones, and are not angels, but are gods. Did you see the common thread throughout all those verses about Abraham? That his is an example of obedience, of personal sacrifice, even when prior promises and other commands seem to be standing in the way, what is God commanding me to do right now in this circumstance? That's what I have to be open for. I mean, even the example of Abraham and Isaac, I wish we knew more about that process of how he came to know and feel and what he did about it as far as Sarah is concerned. We have no record in Genesis that Abraham told Sarah any of that. I'm just heading off to Mount Moriah to do some offerings and I could really use Isaac's help on this. I don't know. I have no idea how much Sarah knew about that and how gut-wrenching it would be for her. Abraham, you do have other children. I don't. How could you do this? Do, am I really being asked to give everything? I had to share you. I had to sacrifice you. Do I have to sacrifice my own son? Gut-wrenching. And again, I think it applies to Emma in this situation. Do I really have to share everything? 
my whole life has been spent wondering what belongs to me and what belongs to the church as far as property is concerned and your time and your attention and and now you yourself but my heart breaks for sarah my heart breaks for emma just as my heart breaks for abraham and my heart breaks for joseph and all those who had to, had to live this but it was a matter of obedience to command and it's obedience to command that brings the blessings of exaltation not a specific kind of action. He then shifts his attention from Abraham and those generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to the other examples that he brought up earlier. Okay, we got that one. How about the later version, specifically David and, and Solomon? In 38, David also received many wives and concubines, also Solomon and Moses, my servants, as also many others of my servants from the beginning of creation until this time. In nothing did they sin, save, so here's the exception, save in those things which they received not of me. Remember, that's Joseph Smith even warning his big beloved brother Hiram, you're going to hell along with the people you seal if you're doing it without authorization. That's serious business. And I can say it to someone I love, like, like Hiram, because the Lord was able to say it to someone he loved, like David, a man whose heart was like him, up to a point and then he went against what God had given, taking things that were not his to take. 39, he explains it. David's wives and concubines were given unto him of me by the hand of Nathan, my servant, and others of the prophets who had the keys of this power. So just all those, those requirements that we saw in the previous verses, the, David's plural marriage met all of those until Bathsheba. He goes on in 39, In none of these things did he sin against me, save in the case of Uriah and his wife. Never meant to be yours, David. And therefore he hath fallen from his exaltation and received his portion, and he shall not inherit them out of the world, for I gave them unto another, saith the Lord. Understand how serious this is? We see elsewhere in Scripture this idea that David's soul will not be left in hell. This seems to suggest what we saw back in verse 26 about the buffetings of Satan until the day of redemption. Oh, he, he did it wrong in that instance and paid the price for it. There is redemption promise, there is, but there was suffering for sin. There was, there was a hell to pay for the mistakes that he made. And, and the same could be said of each of us, that things must be... Rules and exceptions, only God, the author of rule, can be the source of exception. In verse 40, I am the Lord thy God, and I gave unto thee, my servant Joseph, an appointment, and restore all things. Ask what ye will, and it shall be given unto you according to my word. So learn from the example of Abraham, doing it right. Learn from the example of David, doing it wrong in the instance with Bathsheba. Because Joseph... I am restoring all things, including the power to bind on earth and have it bound in heaven. That's what celestial marriage will require. And I'm even restoring at this time, for this purpose, this subset of plural marriage. It has to be done in my way. So ask what you will. It will be given you. Now, 41, here's one of the things he was asking about. And asking with great anxiety... 41, as ye have asked concerning adultery, 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man receiveth a wife in the new and everlasting covenant, and if she be with another man, and I have not appointed unto her by the holy anointing, she hath committed adultery and shall be destroyed. There's that same destroyed word in terms of shaken and destroyed. That, that relationship falls apart because it's built on an unsure foundation from the very beginning. It was adulterous to start. 42, if she be not in the new and everlasting covenant and she be with another man, she hath committed adultery. And it's not just the, the female side. And that's the problem of the woman taken in adultery. If she was caught in the very act, then where's the guy? This is a total setup. The Lord is not doing double standards with men and women here. Because 43, the flip side, if her husband be with another woman and he was under a vow, he hath broken his vow and hath committed adultery. So there's destruction for him as well. But here's the issue, 44, if she hath not committed adultery, but is innocent and hath not broken her vow, and she knoweth it, and I reveal it unto you, my servant Joseph, then shall you have power by the power of my holy priesthood to take her and give her unto him that hath not committed adultery, but hath been faithful, for he shall be made ruler over many. You see what these verses from 41 to 44 are dealing with? This has to be an act of worthiness, of virtue, of chastity. I said monogamy was the rule and polygamy was the exception, but chastity was the rule and there is no exception. That's the case here. In fact, even the language, if Joseph, remember what we saw back in verse 1. Joseph's question originally was, how is this even justifiable? That's just wrong. Here, how is that not adultery? It's just another spouse when you already have one? I love what, what uh, Richard Bushman says in his biography of Joseph Smith, that Joseph was, I mean, after 116 pages, he learned when God says, you do it. And he was incredibly obedient about just leaving things and resettling and gathering Zion's camp and going to prison and just living every commandment God gave him as best as he could. But not this one. If he's learning about it in the early 1830s, and according to history, makes what seems an unsuccessful attempt in the marriage with Fanny Alger. And yes, I call it a marriage. Her parents did. Her parents considered it an, an honorable connection with the prophet through marriage, performed by her uncle. To, to see what's happening with that and just, okay, I did. Can I check off that box? If we're trying to restore all things, can we say that we did that and be done and five years pass with, with some very strong language from God and uh, visitations of an angel with a drawn sword warning Joseph what would happen as far as destruction is concerned if he wasn't faithful to God's commandment. Fine, then I will. And entering into these plural marriages in Nauvoo, some which in good days... Emma approved of, and others on bad days that she was like over my dead body. We'll see more of Emma in a moment. But this worry, this concern, we are chaste people. And how do we make exceptions to that rule? And here the Lord's reassuring them, that's not an exception. Because it's marriage. It's marriage with what that entails. It's responsibility. It's ownership. It's stewardship. It's... It's taking care of people. We see that most clearly in, in Utah when that was visible and possible. But to understand 
the idea of adultery here that doesn't apply in this situation. Unfortunately, you have at the same time a John C. Bennett, a horrible scoundrel that Joseph trusted because of his charisma to be able to help in Nauvoo and with politicians and other people. And, and Bennett was, was the last person worth, worthy of that kind of trust to the point that he was going around seducing women in the Relief Society and elsewhere with a doctrine he called spiritual wifery. Talk about a counterfeit and trying to say, well, as long as nobody knows about it, then it's fine. No, that's adultery. And so no wonder Joseph is caught between this rock and a hard place of how do I explain this to people? And when outsiders hear things that are going on with spiritual wifery and they accuse us of it, that's not what we're doing. But this is what we're doing. They all think it's the same thing. How do I explain this? What do I deny? What do I confess? Who do I tell it to? Who can I trust? Joseph is put in an impossible situation. Again, it reminds me of what we talked about with Oliver Granger, an impossible situation of selling property in Kirtland when <laughs> no one's around to make sure it's a good price. And what did the Lord say to Oliver Granger? I know it's a, a, an impossible mission, but your sacrifice is more important to me than your increase. So when you fall down, get up. Joseph, your sacrifice is more important to me than your success because this is messy. I get it. Try. Repent when you fail. Get up when you fall. Involve Emma as much as you can. Be as honest as you can. With Do your very best. And I see a Joseph falling and rising and failing and trying and trying to keep the commandments of God and not committing adultery. Don't over-centralize or sexualize this because that's that was his biggest concern. The word adultery shows up 10 times in this revelation. It's how nervous they are about all of this. In fact, Brigham Young said an amazing thing later during the Utah period of plural marriage. He said, if the plurality of wives is to pander to the low passions of men and women, then the sooner it's abolished, the better. How far would you go in abolishing it? I would say if the Lord should reveal that it is his will to go so far as to become a shaking Quaker, amen to it and let the sexes have no connection. If so far as for a man to have but one wife, let it be so. The word and will of the Lord is what I want, the will and mind of God. I mean, there's Brother Brigham, who's like the personification of plural marriage. People in the, in the 1900s used to joke and just say, oh, there's bigamy, there's trigamy, and then there's brigamy. Uh, he was constantly just blasted at this. Uh, Mark Twain used to laugh and go, oh, man, it takes... Takes Brigham Young six weeks just to kiss all his wives. Uh, just horrible laughing stock in the Eastern press. And yet it's Brigham saying, I just want to do God's will. The word, the word and will of God, that's all. Just the mind and will of God. And if God's will was monogamy, I'll be the first to sign up. In fact, that's what I did. If it's polygamy, then I have to. If it's, if it's celibacy... That's the shaking Quakers he referred to. The shakers were a celibate sect. And, and he said, if that's what God asked, then I'd, be, I'd do that too. I just want to know what he wants for us. And especially if, if we're using this as a get out of, of chastity card. No. It's never been that. And the moment it becomes that, then, then you, 
I had a bishop who always used to say that lust is not lost in marriage. And just because the status of the act has changed, now that it's okay inside of marriage, that doesn't necessarily mean that the motivation behind it has. And we all have to out, uproot lust from within ourselves. Replace it with love, the pure love of Christ. Well, keep reading. Verse 45. For I have conferred upon you the keys and power of the priesthood, wherein I restore all things and make known unto you all things in due time. There he's connecting it back to verse 40. Before, they, before he tried to set Joseph's heart and mind at ease regarding adultery. You have this authority. You have this power. I'm restoring all things, including this. 46, verily, verily, I say unto you, that whatsoever you seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth in my name and by my word, saith the Lord, it shall be eternally bound in the heavens. Whosoever sins you remit on earth shall be remitted eternally in the heavens. Whosoever sins you retain on earth shall be retained in heaven. Those were things he talked about uh, back in section 128 as he's bringing scriptural precedent to the table for work for the dead. Bind and loose and now seal and forgive. And Joseph has the keys of the kingdom. In 47, he expands it beyond. Again, verily I say, whomsoever you bless, I will bless. Whomsoever you curse, I will curse, saith the Lord. For I, the Lord, am thy God. I will honor, validate, vindicate whatever it is that you do, Joseph, because I know that you are doing your very best efforts to keep my commandments. Part of the challenge of plural marriage in this day is that God basically gave Joseph a goal, but didn't explain all the means, all the way to get there. And that's typically the case, where he tells us to you know, share the gospel and, and preach the gospel in all nations and baptize all. Okay, well, how do we do that? Is it two-year missions? Is it 18-month missions? Is it two-and-a-half-year missions? Does it go at 19? Does it go at 18? Ah, how do we do this? And it's amazing how much God will inspire, but then pull back to let us figure things out on our own. It's a, you took no thought, say, was to ask me? Come on, Oliver. You got some homework to do. I'm trying to help you grow up in God. And so I'm trying to balance agency and inspiration. I'll give you inspiration as far as destination. You're going to have to exercise agency as far as how to get there. And so for Joseph, I'll honor what you say and do. I'll, I'll, I'll vindicate and validate your best efforts. But it's going to be messy for a while. And it was. I mean, when you think of polyandry, the marriage to women that are already married. Now, again, that was just uh, eternity. That wasn't time. They weren't living together as husband and wife. But even this thought of how do we connect families together? If the goal is connect the family of humanity, a binding link, as he's learning about with baptisms for the dead. This, I think, is still part of an outgrowth of this, of how do we connect everyone? We're doing the work for them. They can be saved, but can they be sealed? How do we do that? In some ways, I mentioned this earlier, it's like these, this tribes of Israel model. And we'll connect all these people to Joseph or to Brigham or to, to Hiram or to whomever. In fact, in fact, it's interesting to see many of the wives of Joseph Smith, they were daughters or sisters of people like Newell K. Whitney, one of the bishops, or Edward Partridge, another bishop, or Brigham Young, or Lorenzo Snow, apostles and soon-to-be prophets. Uh, Willard Richards, another apostle. It's just, it's really interesting to see how do we connect people horizontally? Well, let's, we can marry into families and then families are connected. 
there doesn't have to be any sexuality at all. In most of those cases, there wasn't. It's just we're binding families together. Uh, and that's Joseph's understanding at the time. Uh, there's the, and, and then the interesting thing is it's not till Wilford Woodruff. Uh, years later, as, as pl plural marriage is now becoming an impossibility, that when push comes to shove and back against the wall and the temple is in, hanging in the balance, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, then he understands, wait a minute, I think we've been doing that part wrong. Plural marriage was a command of God, but all the ways that we did it to connect families horizontally and to, again, polyandry, adoptions, and kind of dynastic ceilings, that's, that's not the way it has to be done. There's a, much, duh, there's a much simpler one. If we want to connect all the humanity together, just everyone trace their ancestry back through the, the generations until we all meet back up at Adam. Instead of like an, a net of, of tribes of Israel, it's kind of a Christmas tree where everything comes back up these lines until we meet at our, our common ancestors, Adam and Eve. And as long as we're sealed to parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, and then even we're sealing spouses, which then connects a lot of things horizontally. I guess we're stringing Christmas lights around the Christmas tree to get some horizontal mesh. Then we'll all be together. And that's what God is after. He just wants all of us to come home. Remember, that's the sons of Levi's offering in righteousness. Oh, they got purged all right. They got purified through, through the refiner's fire of plural marriage. But the goal is to bring the whole family home, to present to the king of kings the book of his dead. Here's your family, Father. All present and accounted for, if they'll just choose to come home. Joseph, I'll, I'll honor what you're doing. I know you're doing the best you can. Uh, your sacrifice is more important than your increase. And in Joseph's case, there was no family increase with children, but incredible family increase as far as connecting all these families to him. Again, there were later, it was, no, we'll just connect them all upward. We'll get there. And that's what we've been doing ever since, thankfully, as we live the day of the rule instead of the day of the exception. Well, keep going, 48. Again, verily I say unto you, my servant Joseph, that whatsoever you give on earth, and to whomsoever you give any one on earth, by my word and according to my law, it shall be visited with blessings and not cursings, and with my power, saith the Lord, and shall be without condemnation on earth or in heaven. That goes back to this reassurance. How are they justified? No, it's not adultery. No, it's not. You won't be condemned. Remember when I said that at the beginning when it comes to divorce or abortion and how scared we might be to, to be an exception and think that God is going to condemn us for it? Here's the reassurance. You're living the exception. You prayed about it. You're gaining my confirmation that what you're doing is right. So rest assured, there's no condemnation for your specific circumstance. I honor that. I was part of the decision. I am for this too, Joseph. 49, for I am the Lord thy God, and will be with thee even unto the end of the world, and through all eternity, for verily I seal upon you your exaltation, and prepare a throne for you in the kingdom of my father, with Abraham your father. Wow, Joseph here is receiving his calling and election, that more sure word of prophecy. 
uh, sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. We saw that in the Book of Mormon where Alma is told, You're, you made it. And for Joseph to have that reassurance, going through one of the hardest trials of his life, like, I bet there's a part of him that's like, can I just go back to Liberty Jail? At least people weren't misjudging me the way they are now. At least Emma wasn't so torn apart by this. To have that reassurance, you're doing the best you can, Joseph, and I honor it. He then says in 50, Behold, I have seen your sacrifices and will forgive all your sins. No, you have not been doing it all right, Joseph. I understand that. I will forgive you. Emma will too. I have seen your sacrifices in obedience to that which I have told you. Go therefore, and I make a way for your escape as I accepted the offering of Abraham of his son Isaac. We don't know the specifics of what he, the Lord referred to in verse 50. Something Joseph and Emma were going through, something that the Lord accepted effort and then stayed the hand. Again, God didn't stay the hand with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. But he did stay the hand with Abraham and Isaac. And even when they were going through Egypt on the way down and through Philistia on the way back up, two times, remember the story in the book of Abraham and in Genesis where Abraham says to Sarah, please tell them you're my sister instead of my wife because they're going to kill me to take you. If it were just brother or sister, then they'll just take you, but they won't kill me. Now, that sounds horrible because it's like, uh, honey, be my human shield and let them take you into their harem and do whatever they want with you uh, sexually as long as I live physically. First of all, that doesn't sound like Abraham. He was willing to put his life on the line to go defend Lot, who was kind of a punk to him. Of course, he's going to be able to defend his own wife. The Abraham account clarifies what the Genesis does not, that that was a command to, to him as well, that God commanded him, tell, ask Sarah to say that she's your sister instead of your wife. I mean, technically semantics, it's, you're related, so that counts. There was some flexibility in the word sister and brother back in those days. But the irony, or not the irony, but what the gut punch of that is, it's another Abrahamic test for Sarah. Put your virtue on the altar. And offer yourself in sacrifice to preserve the, the covenant line. And she does. To Pharaoh and again to the king of the Philistines. Twice she has to do it. Didn't I pass the test the first time? But twice in both instances, the hand is stayed. And neither Pharaoh nor the king of the Philistines touches her at all. Her virtue is intact. I mean, I love the story, those stories of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac because all three of them passed Abrahamic tests. Isaac would have been old enough to defend himself. And yet for him to offer his life, trusting that it was God's will, this was a family of faith, proven by becoming a family of sacrifice. Joseph and Emma, similarly. I make a way for your escape. He goes on with that in verse 51. Verily I say unto you, a commandment I give unto mine handmaid, Emma Smith, your wife. Now we, the, the audience shifts. God's been speaking to Joseph, now he's speaking to Emma. But notice how he introduces her. She's my handmaid first. She's your wife second. And so the vertical relationship has to take precedent over the horizontal relationship 
I'm asking you to do that, Joseph, in your relationships. I'm asking Emma to do it as well. And I know this is going to be the hardest thing she's ever had to go through. And this is a woman who's been through incredibly hard things. But my message for my handmaid, my servant, Emma, just like my commands to my servant, Joseph, here's what I'm asking. Whom I have given unto you, that she stay herself and partake not of that which I commanded you to offer unto her. For I did it, saith the Lord, to prove you all, as I did Abraham, and that I might require an offering at your hand by covenant and sacrifice. Now on that one also, we don't know the details. Was, was there something being asked of Emma that she was willing to do despite her herself and her natural desires, and now the hand was stayed? I'm so grateful for a hand being stayed in 50, a hand being stayed in 51. The Lord softens even hard sayings, but he can't remove the hard saying entirely. He keeps going with Emma in 52. Let mine handmaid, again, keeping that in perspective, that vertical relationship, let my handmaid Emma Smith receive all those that have been given unto my servant Joseph and who are virtuous and pure before me. And those who are not pure and have said they were pure shall be destroyed, saith the Lord God. It's another th threat, if you want to call it that. I th would say more consequence of impurity is destruction. Those relationships fall apart under the shake and stress of, of shaking. 53, for I am the Lord thy God, and ye shall obey my voice. And I give unto my servant Joseph that he shall be made ruler over many things, for he hath been faithful over a few things. And from henceforth I will strengthen him. And of a, a gut-wrenching version of the parable of the talents. 54, and I command mine handmaid Emma Smith to abide and cleave unto my servant Joseph and to none else. But if she will not abide this commandment, she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord. For I am the Lord thy God and will destroy her if she abide not in my law. Now that is one of the hardest verses in this, ver in this section. Because it seems so ominous, so threatening. But again, the word has appeared multiple times throughout this section. We're, we're warned later that Joseph is, is, that Satan's trying to destroy Joseph, that adulterers that are impure will be destroyed. I mean, 11 times in this section, destroyed is mentioned. Only three of them refer to Emma, but they're, they're brutal verses, instances of that word. How do, we, how do we wrestle with this? Again, I think we need to understand what God means or might mean by the term. There is, oh, for example, in section 42, it talks about the result of, of adultery. And it says that they are cast out or cut off. We would say excommunicated. Well, there's a destruction of one's covenant relationship through the church and to God. Is that part of the destruction that we're talking about? There is uh, section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants when it talks about the lost 116 pages. And what, what does the Lord say about Martin Harris? He talks about this man in whom you have trusted. He has sought to destroy you, and he has also sought to destroy your gift. Now, I think right there, Martin Harris would be like, what, what are you talking about? I, I was trying to back you up. I just, 
I was putting my trust in the arm of flesh instead of the arm of God. I was trying to, to prove to people that you really had the, these gifts to, prophes- uh, to, to, to translate. I wasn't trying to destroy, destroy you, destroy the work. No. But picture how God sees the end result of things and sometimes pulls you forward to show this is the path you're on. Do you have any idea the damage you could be causing Yes, your attempt to prove Joseph a prophet was destructive because he has to be taken on faith. I just wonder when it comes to this word with Emma, if there's a sense that we need to back up and just see, is the Lord saying with very strong language, as he often uses, remember section 19, sometimes even stronger than he means because he knows it's going to work on our heart in ways that are necessary for us to take it seriously? Eternal salvation, or excuse me, eternal damnation, everlasting punishment. Oh, I didn't mean it like that. I I have a feeling the Lord would say, I didn't mean it like the way you're thinking, but if it works on you in a good way, then I'm all for it. The kind of destruction I'm talking about is falling from your exaltation, which is meant to take place alongside your eternal companion, Joseph Smith. We're not, this is not some kind of capital punishment. The saints don't act, it's illegal to even do it. Next week, uh, we'll study section 134. Churches don't do that. And so we're not talking, this isn't some kind of death threat. The same people who uh, sensationalize plural marriage on the sexuality issue and turn Joseph Smith into a sexual predator and a pedophile also make him into a master manipulator and just leveraging his prophetic authority and his call and, and the threat of damnation itself to force women into these kinds of relationships. Read the accounts. That's just not the way it was. It, here's what God has told me. Gain a testimony of these things for yourself. I mean, w- was this talk any more threatening or ominous than Joseph himself seeing an angel with a drawn sword? And not the sword, not that the angel is going to slay him in the moment, but this is the path you're on. Self-destruction if you're not faithful to the commandments of God. I, we saw that throughout this revelation. It all boils down to commandments and revelation and our willingness to abide by them, to keep them. Our salvation or damnation, our edification or destruction. That's what's writing on all of this for all of us. I live in constant threat, the ominous foreboding threat of my marriage and family being destroyed by death if I'm not faithful to the covenants we've made. I hope that makes sense. Even if you look at the 1828 Webster's Dictionary and look up destruction, The very first definition of destroy is to demolish, to pull down, listen to this one, to separate the parts of an edifice, the union of which is necessary to constitute the thing. Well, imagine separating the parts of a marriage, the union of which is required to constitute the thing. Eternal marriage isn't a prerequisite. It's the essence of exaltation. And so, of course, your exaltation will be destroyed if, it is, if your marriage is separated. So as hard as this is, Emma and Joseph, 
forgive one another. You both trust in the atonement of Christ. Neither one wants to shed the innocent blood. Forgive each other for your, your mistakes that you've made, for trying the best you can to do an impossible thing, to, to keep one commandment and now have to keep another one that seems in total conflict with the first. Sound like Adam and Eve? And for them to be misjudged and maligned ever since, especially Eve, when they were actually doing just what God intended for them? Oh, these are hard things to wrestle with. And especially when it comes to Emma. I'm grateful that we're finally emerging from the shadow of conflict between the LDS and the RLDS churches. Because for so much of our history, we, it was like Brigham versus Emma. And I feel bad for both of them. Some people have joked the reason they, they, there was so much friction between Brigham and Emma is because at the end of the day, they were basically the same person. Just super, super strong-willed and had to be to be able to do what they had to do. Uh, we talked about this before about coins with heads and tails. And it's the same coin. So it makes you strong, also gives you the potential to be weak in, in inherently connected areas. Emma's head coin was strength, courage, conviction, thinking for herself, not being moved by what people thought. How else are you going to survive marriage to the laughing stock of the 19th century? And not to care what people think and just to move forward because I know it's true. Well, now imagine being asked to do something impossible. Share the one thing you thought you could keep to yourself when everything else had to be shared with the world. I can't do this. I won't do this. And the same coin, the same strength that allowed her to stand up to the persecutors also led her to stand up to the prophet and stand up to God in some ways. I I will, I can't, I won't. Even when on her best days, like Sarah, she said, I will, somehow. This is a very, a, a much later uh, reminiscence. And with historiography, you always have to take later reminiscences with a grain of salt. But near the end of her life, a woman by the name of Maria Jane Woodward signed on the dotted line, attesting to the truthfulness of this kind of an affidavit of something she remembered when she was a young woman in the home of Joseph and Emma. And around this time period, she heard them talking loudly. <laughs> Hiram was there. It was, this is an intense moment as they're wrestling with some really hard things. I mean, Hiram, when he, she, he first presented this revelation to Emma, thinking, we've got a good relationship. And Hiram was the type that, man, if he... he he could convince anyone of something because his, his integrity was so, was so strong, like we saw in DNC 124. And Joseph was like, good luck, Hiram, but you don't know Emma as well as I do. This is not going to fly. And it didn't. And Emma's just livid and get out, Hiram, and take that uh, revelation and burn it. Uh, so angry about all of this. Well, according to this signed statement from, from Maria Woodward, the next morning, she and Emma were sitting down together, and she looked very sad and cast down, Emma did. And then she said to me, the principle of plural marriage is right, but I'm like other women. I am naturally jealous-hearted and can talk back to Joseph as long as any wife can talk back to her husband. 
But what I want to say to you is this. You heard me finding fault with the principle. I want to say that that principle is right. It's from our Father in heaven. And then again, she spoke of her jealousy. Then she continued, what I said, I have got to repent of. The principle is right, but I am jealous hearted. Now never tell anybody that you heard me find fault with Joseph or that principle. The principle is right. And if I or you or anyone else find fault with that principle, we have got to humble ourselves and repent of it. Best of times, worst of times, best of feelings, worst of emotions. We're all a mix of all of that. Carly P. Pratt's first wife had such a struggle with this at the beginning. And yet later in life, this was an incredibly happy family, all things considered. Valate Kimball wrote her husband, Heber C. Kimball, a, a letter about the Pratt situation. See, the Kimball situation was an interesting one because Valate didn't know Heber had been told and just couldn't bring himself to tell her. He, that was a celestial marriage if ever there was one. Heber and Valate Kimball, beautiful example. And Valate was so concerned because her husband couldn't, wouldn't eat, wouldn't sleep, wouldn't say anything. And she's like, how do I help? What do I do? And she actually prayed to Heavenly Father and said, how do I help my husband? And she had the principle of, of plural marriage revealed directly to her. This is what's on your husband's mind. Does it make sense now how devastated he is and he can't talk to you about it, won't eat and won't sleep? She's the one that then came to Heber and said, Heber, I know what it is. And as hard as it's going to be, it's going to be okay. Somehow we'll get through this. He said, he perceived was like, what a blessing that she received that answer directly from God. And actually throughout the rest of their marriage, and Heber C. Kimball had about as many wives as Brigham Young did. But unlike some couples who tried, well, let's just treat everyone exactly the same. And that was the best way they could come up with for the Kimball family. Heber C. always kept Valate on a pedestal. And all the other wives were totally fine with it. They all looked up to Valate as well. Uh, just letting us into this family. To, again, it was hard for us to even to wrap our minds and hearts around. But it's just interesting how they made those things work. In fact, oh, I'm sorry about for the tangent. Uh, Valate wrote a letter to Heber C. Kimball about the Pratt situation when Sister Pratt first finds out about the principal. She said this, Sister Pratt has been raging against these things. She told me herself that the devil had been in her until within a few days past. She said the Lord had shown her it was all right. She wants Parley to go ahead, says she will do all in her power to help him. They asked me many questions on principle, and I told them these were sacred things, and he better not make a move until he got more instruction. It's like we were, the, we're the first to admit this is tough stuff. So don't take a step forward until you know that God is leading the way. In some ways, isn't that what he's asking all of us to do in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships? Get instruction from heaven. Emma would, would try. She'd have good days and bad days, just like us all. In 56, she's told, again, verily I say, let mine handmaid forgive my servant Joseph his trespasses, and then shall she be forgiven her trespasses, wherein she hath trespassed against me, against me, the Lord says, and I, the Lord thy God, will bless her and multiply her and make her heart to rejoice. Similar promises to what he'd said back in section 25 when all of this began. God loved Emma. Joseph loved Emma. And Emma loved God and loved Joseph. 
I sometimes think of Brigham Young and his last three words dying was Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. But those were Emma's last words too. Even after having been married to Louis Biderman for, for a long, long time. Even after forgiving him, or talk about a gut punch, he did commit adultery. And, and Emma raised the illegitimate child. And on her deathbed, having forgiven the, her husband as well as this, this woman that he'd been unfaithful with, he, she, required, she told them, you have to get married so that this boy has parents and doesn't have to go through life being branded an illegitimate child. You want to talk about learning how to forgive people? Emma became an expert at it. The, the matriarch of the, of, the rest, of the Restoration, one of the truly great daughters of God, was Emma Smith. Heads and tails like we all have. But forgive and be forgiven. And I believe she was. I love what Emily Partridge said about her. One of the few people to whom Joseph was married, sealed in a, in a plural marriage, that Emma actually approved of, at least for a time. Near the end of her life, Remembering her, the old days when she was there in the home of Joseph and Emma, Sister Partridge said this, After these many years, I can truly say, poor Emma. She could not stand polygamy, but she was a good woman, and I never wished to stand in her way of happiness and exaltation. I hope the Lord will be merciful to her, and I believe he will. If the Lord will, my heart says, let Emma come up and stand in her place. Perhaps she has done no worse than any of us would have done in her place. Let the Lord be the judge. I, I think that's what the Lord is saying himself in verse 56. And, and I believe God judges her mercifully, all that she went through. Now, a few last things in this revelation. 57. Again I say, let not my servant Joseph put his property out of his hands, lest an enemy come and destroy him. For Satan seeketh to destroy, there's that word again, for I am the Lord thy God, and he is my servant. And behold, and lo, I am with him, as I was with Abraham thy father, even unto his exaltation and glory. We don't know the specifics of that, what property he means, and why having it was going to potentially destroy Joseph. But we can assume that he acted upon that and put it out of his hands as, as required. 58, now as touching the law of the priesthood, there are many things pertaining thereunto. Let's come back to this thought. He was talking about that law and then took an aside to explain uh, that this is not adultery. He came back to the law and then took an aside to talk Emma through this. Now let's get back to this law. 59, verily, if a man be called of my father, as was Aaron, by mine own voice, this is priesthood, and by the voice of him that sent me, and I have endowed him with the keys of the power of this priesthood. If he do anything in my name and according to my law and by my word, he will not commit sin and I will justify him. We saw that earlier. I will honor, I will ratify, I will validate or vindicate what they are doing with their very best efforts. So verse 60, let no one therefore set on my servant Joseph, for I will justify him. For he shall do the sacrifice which I require at his hands. For his transgressions, saith the Lord your God. Yes, imperfect transgressions. I understand those, but I also understand Joseph's repentance. I see his sacrifices, and I accept the sacrifices just like I forgive the sins. That's true of all of us. He's doing the best that he can. 
61. Again, as pertaining to the law of the priesthood, if any man espouse a virgin and desire to espouse another, and the first give her consent, and if he espouse the second and they are virgins and have vowed to no other man, then is he justified. He cannot commit adultery, for they are given unto him, for he cannot commit adultery with that that belongeth unto him and to no one else. Now, forgive me or the scriptures for 19th century language that reflects the understanding of the people in that time that unfortunately made women almost sound or seem like property in a marriage. Thankfully, we are past that culturally. And there is even language in the temple that has been changed to reflect that. It would, this, that language would have raised no eyebrows. Well, additional virgins, that would have raised all the eyebrows. But the, the language of kind of belonging unto and so on, that would have raised no eyebrows in the 19th century. And by the time it did raise eyebrows in the 21st century, we've changed temple language so that eyebrows can go back and, and focus on the things that matter most about this. Okay, I hope that makes sense. But this idea, and, and virgin here can simply mean pure and chaste. It can instill, widows were often uh, part, uh, a pl plural marriage and so on to care for all and make sure everyone was taken care of. That's not the justification for it, uh, but that was a, a beneficial result of it. So be careful with the word virgin and don't define it too narrowly. But if people are worthy, is what he's saying, it's not adultery. If you met all the requirements that I've set out throughout this whole revelation, again, let me reassure you for the umpteenth time, this is my will. I mean, this really does sound like 1 Nephi 4, where the Lord has to keep repeating to Nephi, under these circumstances, it's what I'm asking. I would assume that similar back and forth took place with Abraham over the Isaac ordeal. But it's not condemnation. It's not adultery. But one thing that is added in 61 we haven't seen before is the first giving her consent. Now they call this the law of Sarah because as God commanded that to take place with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, Sarah was the one who gave Hagar to, to Abraham to wife. And ideally, that's what is expected here. That if both husband and wife gain testimonies of this principle, and that's what we saw with the Kimballs and with the Pratts. And, and so often this was the case. Emma was just the hardest one. And who can blame her? Nobody sacrificed quite as much as she did. And she was the Relief Society president in Nauvoo. And scumbags like uh, John C. Bennett are seducing women within her Relief Society. And it's like, I have to protect my sisters. And now if it, the, the counterfeit was so close to the real thing and... I can't do this. Well, neither can Joseph. Gut-wrenching and all the way around. And so there were times that Emma lived the law of Sarah or allowed Joseph to live the law of Sarah. In fact, in the, in the, it's fascinating, but in the Utah period, when plural marriages were performed, it was the first wife that would take the hand of an additional wife and put it into the hand of her husband to kind of solemnize and, and, and show as hard as this is for me and as much of a sacrifice as this is for all of us, I'm participating in this too. And so that's the ideal. Was it always lived? No. And we'll see that explained in just a moment. Verse 62, if he have 10 virgins given unto him by the law, 
He still cannot commit adultery, for they belong to him. They are given unto him, therefore he is justified. Again, how do we justify this when it seems everything about us yells foul? 63, but if one or either of the ten virgins, after she is espoused, shall be with another man, then she has committed adultery. This is not just willy-nilly free love, anything but that. And shall be destroyed. Same word that felt so threatening before. It's not just Emma, it's not just Joseph, it's just... It's destroying potential and possibility. For they are given unto him to, and then the Lord gives what I would consider the best single verse that lists some of the reasons behind the call to live plural marriage. Uh, it's so hard to justify, so hard to make sense of. Here are five reasons the Lord gives for having done it. Number one, first and foremost, to multiply and replenish the earth. Same commandment he gave Adam and Eve that required them to make a gut-wrenching decision about not partaking of the fruit, raising up seed unto the Lord, the seed of people that are covenant keepers and self-sacrificers. It's not just the quantity of children, but the quality of their faith that he's after. Number two, and to fulfill the promise which was given by my father before the foundation of the world. And what was that promise? that he would send us to earth to grow, to become, and that he would teach us and nurture us and, and tell us how to come home. Now, where better to do that than in a home of people that will put God first and keep their covenants by sacrifice? Like I said earlier, I'm honored to have ancestors that, that put their own ease on the altar and live plural marriage themselves. And to have ancestors that were raised by such couples that my parents always put God first over themselves, over each other. It actually reminds me when people, you look at uh, the, the flood with Noah. We'll study that early next year also. And you picture how wicked the people were. Imagine us in pre-mortality going, I, I, no, you can't send me down to earth. My odds are, are slim and none. Uh, Elder Maxwell said it, 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 wickedness was so bad it had come to the the agency destroying point. So can you picture all of us like white knuckling the top of the slide and going, no, you can't send me down. It's like Ralphie on the Christmas story. Uh, I'm not going down to earth. Oh, oh, fine. On one condition. I'll only go if I can go in Noah's family because that's my only shot. You cannot send me to earth unless you send me into Noah's family. And then once that, that thought comes, then it starts to spread like wildfire throughout the pre-mortality. Like, yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. And everyone's kind of like sit down strike. None of us are going to go to earth unless we can go to Noah's family. And God says, okay, I can arrange that. And we all did. Well, not that we all came into polygamous families, obviously. But there is enough of the leaven for the lump that the church has an incredible percentage of people today that have ancestors that kept impossible commandments and received unimaginable promises. The third one, for their exaltation in the eternal worlds. Worlds without end, continuation of the seed, eternal progress and procreation. Fourth, that they might bear the souls of men. Again, proving that they're worthy of receiving them. Again, this idea of increase in this world and in the world to come. And fifth, for herein is the work of my Father continued, that he may be glorified. 
we glorify God by expanding his family of the faithful. We glorify God by bringing all of his children home. And the only way we do that is by learning to live by revelation, to keep commandments, to make personal sacrifices, and to put his work first. Plural marriage, as gut-wrenching as it was, was amazing at accomplishing those kinds of goals. 64, again, verily, verily, I say unto you, if any man have a wife who holds the keys of this power, and he teaches unto her the law of my priesthood as pertaining to these things, then shall she believe and administer unto him, or she shall be destroyed. Her faith will be, that is, her eternal promises, saith the Lord your God. For I will destroy her, for I will magnify my name upon all those who receive and abide in my law. Again, strong language. Brutally strong in our 21st century's more sensitive ears. It would have sounded a little different in the 19th, but please again, don't, don't take this to some extreme that the saints were practicing blood atonement or that they were uh, practicing capital punishment. That, that just wasn't the case. And in fact, even as it was implemented, if it's like, okay, the Lord will destroy her, however he does that, and whatever that means as far as judgment is concerned, we're going to leave that to him. But we're going to be as lenient and merciful as we possibly can here. So again, Joseph wasn't trying to manipulate or threaten people into obedience. You say no, no hard feelings. Uh, there was one where Parley P. Pratt proposed to someone and say, hey, if this, please know what you're getting yourself into. This is, this is a rough life. Uh, uh, not just plural marriage, but even just being married to someone who's gone all the time on missions and things. This, this is tough. So count the cost before you decide. And if you decide against it, then no hard feelings at all. And it's easy not to have any hard feelings because there weren't any romantic feelings going into it for the most part. Almost always it was like, I barely even know this person, but, but plural marriage and here's that. It wasn't romance. It was religion. It wasn't about sexuality as much as it was about spirituality. I, I can't say that enough. And even in, in the Utah period, as hard as marriage was, divorce was actually really easy. For in the church today, divorce is supposed to be really hard because marriage is comparatively easy compared to what it was then. Brigham Young was like, no, we want people to be happy. We want people to raise their children in righteousness. And so if it's not working, then believe me, there's other options out there. Even if the other option is married, he's still an option. Talking about pressure for the guys, like, wait, I'm still competing with everyone else, even though they're already married? Wow, I better treat my wife well. And if it wasn't, Brigham wasn't very lenient on divorce when a man requested it, but was very open when a woman did. And, and so again, this soften what you read in, in verse 64, based on the practice, as humanity is trying to reach up for divinity and always falling short. He then says in 65, Therefore it shall be lawful in me, if she receive not this law, for him to receive all things whatsoever I, the Lord his God, will give unto him. Because she did not believe and administer unto him according to my word. And she then becomes the transgressor. And he is exempt from the law of Sarah, who administered unto Abraham according to the law when I commanded Abraham to take Hagar to wife. So there's an exception to that, that ideal with the law of Hagar in instances where the wife just cannot bring herself to, to participate. And that describes Emma 
for most of this period. On the one hand, it's, I won't force you to accept or participate, but, but you're, you can't force me not to participate when that is God's commandment. I, like I said, I feel so sad for Emma and what she went through. I feel equally sad for Joseph and caught between this rock and a hard place, between a commandment that came from the God he knew and the feelings of the woman he loved. And he loved her and she loved him. The fact that she never divorced him through all of these difficulties in, in spite of her strong feelings against plural marriage. The fact that even there, there is a letter that he wrote. Well, there's lots of letters he wrote to Emma from Liberty that are just so full of love for her. But there's one, it, was, it wasn't a letter, it was a journal entry. So you really get to see Joseph just, this is just for me and how I feel about Emma. This is August of 1842, so same time period. He wrote, My beloved Emma, she that was my wife, even the wife of my youth and the choice of my heart. Against a backdrop of plural marriage, those phrases are all the more meaningful. The wife of my youth, the choice of my heart, the one I always wanted to spend eternity with, far outlived any Requirement on God's part to live an impossible command. Their relationship is a beautiful one. Again, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. I believe he was coming back for her and she was being received into him. The, the section then ends in 66. Now, as pertaining to this law, verily, verily, I say unto you, I will reveal more unto you hereafter. Therefore, let this suffice for the present. Behold, I am Alpha and Omega. Amen. The fact that there would be more forthcoming. And like we said earlier in this lesson, the things that, that Brigham Young develops in, in Utah, the things that, I mean, most clearly Wilfred Woodruff by the 1880s and 90s, and this realization that there's a simpler way of doing, of achieving the goal that God has given us. There was still the, a law for, for plural marriage. And it, yes, it, the command came from God and it had to be lived. But perhaps it didn't have to be lived in all the ways that it was. But they tried their very best. And God revealed line upon line as time went on, as he always does. But I do want to just conclude with a thought or two about that last phrase. Behold, I am Alpha and Omega. The last thing the Lord leaves them with is the who behind this impossible what. And even though he includes some whys, there's not enough whys to make complete sense of it. At the end of the day, there have been all kinds of explanations and justifications for plural marriage made by people ever since. And some of them seem, okay, interesting. I mean, we saw this, what the Lord revealed in verse 63, right? These are some of the things that will come as a result. But so much of what people have said, oh, it was just to take care of the widows and orphans. Well, that helped some, but that what doesn't explain it all. Well, it was for a massive population explosion. Well, within certain families, true, but overall, not so much. Uh, many of those explanations just don't hold water. So at the end of the day, if someone were to ask you, why did the early saints practice plural marriage? The simplest answer is the last one God gives. Because I am Alpha 
and omega. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. And within those bookends, your life is meant to unfold by revelation and obedience to commandment, by self-sacrifice. As hard as that is, we come to know God by trusting in the who, even when we don't know the what or the why. Let me, let me share this story. And this is what I was hinting at at the very beginning of our lesson hours and hours ago. Uh, it was a blessing to me that came from Heavenly Father, and I want to share it with you. It was my first year teaching the Old Testament in seminary, and I've shared this with you before, that I just felt like I wanted it fresh in my mind. And so if I can read a book, I'd looked at the dates, if I can read a book a day, I can finish the Old, I can reread the Old Testament before the year begins, and I'll be full of just ready to rock. Well, reading Genesis in one sitting is a long time in front of the scriptures, 50 chapters, 40 chapters of Exodus, you're, you're flying through things. Uh, the day, I learned things from that flyover. You see lay of the land in ways you can't when you're just doing a chapter a night. But having to do with today's lesson, I learned something the day I studied Leviticus, of all places. Uh, leave it, you cuss. Most people pronounce it. It's like, I don't want to read that book. It's just crazy stuff. And it is. There's all kinds of interesting, crazy things. Uh, the kosher laws and uh, sacrificial rites and, and how, what do you do with the the liver and the, and, the, and the dung and the skin and an animal that you're offering. It's like the handbook of instructions for the priests and Levites, okay? And it's really weird stuff. But I was reading it in one sitting. And because I read so much so fast, I started noticing things that kept popping up that I don't think I would have noticed if I just did a chapter a day because it was too infrequent. But sit down and read the whole thing. And incessantly the Lord says, I am the Lord. He says it over and over and over again. Uh, and again, by, because I was reading so fast, I just noticed it and then noticed it again and noticed it. And it's like, I know, I know who you are. You just said it like one chapter ago. And then read another chapter. I am the Lord. I know. And over and over, I, I lost count of how many times he said, I am the Lord. But by the time I finished Leviticus, I thought, wow, he was incessant, emphatic about that. It comes from me. And I started wondering, why would he do that? I don't remember that in Genesis or Exodus, but boy, did he do that in Leviticus. And I, and I was like, okay, ready to move on. I guess I got uh, numbers tomorrow. But the Spirit was like, you're not done. Have you ever done this in your scripture study where you just can't stop thinking about it? It's like what Joseph said about working for the dead last time. It presses itself upon my, my feelings the strongest. It's occupying my mind. Well, there was something about that phrase, I am the Lord, that occupied my mind and pressed itself upon my feelings. Revelation was happening. And I just kept thinking, why would he do that here? And then it hit me, what is Leviticus? Leviticus is law, and especially tricky ones, ones that don't always seem to make sense at first. And rather than explain all of the reasoning, which God hardly ever holds himself accountable to do. He never does it with Job, right? Even though I, he gives him all of his blessings back, the one thing he didn't give was an explanation. God seldom explains himself to us. We owe him our faith and our trust. But what he does feel like he owes us is the signature at the bottom. So we know who it's from. Is the, the confirmation, I'm behind this, Think how many times in your life he hasn't told you why you're going through what you're going through, but he has reassured you that he's aware and that he's here for you, carrying you through the process. I, 
I won't give you the why, but here's the who. I'm here. And I just felt so confirmed in that from Leviticus, thinking, ah, that makes sense. With difficult or easily misunderstood commandments, God always makes sure you you know who it's coming from. Thank you. Now I feel like I'm done. He didn't feel like I was done. Again, it was pressing itself upon my feelings and and, uh, occupying my thoughts. And I'm like, I'm still not finished? And I just felt this uneasiness, like, are you sure you got them all? So I was like, okay. So I went on the computer then, it's faster. And I searched for the phrase, I am the Lord. And sure enough, they're everywhere in Leviticus. And I went through on my scriptures and I just marked them all counting them up so I would have them all. Okay, I'll still jump off the page as I'm teaching this uh, when school starts and we'll see how often the Lord reminds them that he is the Lord. So I'm good now, right? Nope. Check the rest of the book. And I was like, I did. I read the rest of, I covered the rest of Leviticus and have them all. No, the rest of the book. And I'm like, seriously? I've got to study the whole Old Testament for this? Well, thank you, computer. I put it in. It was almost like I had an I am the Lord-o-meter. And I started back in Genesis, and I was like, how often does he say this? And like, deet, deet. You know, you get to Leviticus, deet, 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 and then Deuteronomy, deet, deet. And I went through the entire Old Testament, and never again does the Lord repeat so emphatically, I am the Lord. It's just Leviticus. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, does that just like, why did you have me do that? Just to confirm that Leviticus really is the, the one place it happens because it has the weirdest commandments? Okay, I'm done, right? No, okay, still not done. I said, finish the rest of the book. This isn't a a vocal conversation, just this sense of uneasiness that I'm not done with this homework. And so, keep going. So I kept my I am the Lordometer and went through the New Testament and the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. I finished the book. I went through the whole thing. And you know what fascinated me? Never again in Scripture is the Lord so emphatic about I am the Lord than he was in Leviticus. With one exception. And that's Doctrine and Covenants section 132. And when I saw that, I was blown away That the same God who reassures the ancients that in the absence of the why, you'll always know the who, he does the same thing in our day. Joseph, this one's going to be really hard. It comes from me. Emma, you're going to hate this. But I am the Lord. Saints, this is going to go against everything you've ever thought was right all your cultural upbringing, all that wonderful morality that is bringing you to to resonate with the light. It still needs to resonate with the light, but I am the light and I am the law and I am the Lord and this comes from me. He is emphatic throughout this revelation that he is the Lord. Verse 2 and 12, and 13, and 24, and 28, and 40, and 47, and 49, and 53, and 54, and 57, and 65, and 66. I was blown away by that realization. And I thank God for that reassurance that he's behind this. Actually, years later in studying 
There is one other place I noticed where it's not, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, but it's, he is the Lord, he is the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And they only switched it because it was a, a prophet speaking instead of God speaking. And where's that instance? Jacob 2, which we spent some time on earlier, where God is emphatic that saying no to plural marriage came from him also. The source of the rule and the source of the exception are the same. And that source is God himself. As you study the accounts of those who participated in it, again, from the safety of a 21st century armchair quarterback casting aspersions upon those who actually lived it. No, go back to the sources. And as hard as it was for so many, it's amazing to read the accounts of those who gained testimonies of the principle. Didn't make it easier, but it made them know that God would be with them as they strived, as they tried, as they, as they sacrificed and lived into this. One of my favorites comes from Mercy Fielding Thompson Smith. What she said about this is, is so beautifully put. She said, this subject, when first communicated to me, tried me to the very core of my former traditions, and every natural feeling of my heart rose in opposition to this principle. But I was convinced that it was appointed, listen to this, by him who is too wise to err and too good to be unkind. Do you sense her relationship with the who? The capital W who, her relationship with God that allowed her to navigate any lesser relationships with, with fellow human beings on earth? He's too wise to err. He's too good to be unkind. This isn't punishment and this isn't, this isn't error. This is God calling us up to be someone more like him, as gut-wrenching as it might be. I don't know, my friends, exactly what it's all going to look like in the next life. I don't know how God is going to navigate all the messiness of, of mortal sociality, even as he infuses it with glory. I don't know all the results of, of people that never had the chance and how those chances will come, and how it's all going to work, and different situations with... You know what I'm talking about. Just so many different ways things might look. And I don't know what it's all going to end up looking like, but I do trust him who is too wise to err and too good to be unkind. Someone else who felt that way is Henry Jacobs, whose own experience in plural marriage is, is just as gut-wrenching as stories you read of the women who went through it all. But he said something fascinating, in the midst, even in the midst of his self-sacrifice. He wrote in a letter, There will be shiftings in time and revisions in eternity, and all be made right in the end. It, to me, I don't know if there's a better benediction for our conversation on plural marriage. Eternal families, yeah, there's probably going to have to be some revisions, some shiftings. I don't know how it's all going to work, but I do trust in God that all will be well in the end. As I've said to my students, whenever I have a question mark, a what-if situation I just can't explain, I surround that one question mark, or however many friends it brings, with four exclamation points. 
And if I can hold to those four exclamation points, I can navigate any question mark. And the four are these. Number one, is God real? Because if he isn't, then none of this matters. There's no eternal nothing. Number two, is he all-knowing? Too wise to err? Will he have an answer to whatever difficult question mark you're presenting? Number three, is God all-omnipotent, all-powerful? It'd be a bummer if he was there and didn't know how to help. It'd be a bummer if he was there and knew the perfect answer, but couldn't implement it. But he is there, and he knows the answer, and he can make it work. He can make it happen, which then leaves number four, perhaps most important of all. Is God love? To have his omniscience and his omnipotence softened and glorified by his omnibenevolence, big word, just his all-lovingness all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving. Because if he's all-loving, then whatever that answer is, and it'll be the right one because he's omniscient, whichever thing, whatever he chooses to do, which he'll do because he's omnipotent, will end up being the best possible thing for all concerned. Every party in all of this. So no matter what the shiftings or the revisions or adjustments or whatever is necessary, I don't know. I can't. No, I hath not seen and ear hath not heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man that which God hath prepared for them that love him. But we do love him. And more importantly, he does love us. My friends, at the end of this eternal lesson on eternal marriage, I pray that you can rest assured that God is in charge, that you can rest in him, and that you can feel his sweet reassurance that in your personal circumstances, he is indeed too wise to err and too good to be unkind.